Lucifer Means Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire The Weirwood Compendium Chapter 1 The Grey King and the Sea Dragon Hey there, friends and fellow mythical astronomers. Today, we're going to talk about Ironborn, mythology, and theology, all of which seems to center around this swashbuckling fellow known as the Grey King, the slayer of the sea dragon and stealer of the fire of the gods. Harken back, if you will, to chapter four of our own little Bloodstone Compendium project, where we analyze the trial by combat between Sir Gregor, the mountain that rides, and Prince Oberyn Martell, the Red Viper of Dorne. The highlight of that entire scene, at least for me, was the Gregor Eclipse. Gregor, the moon warrior, created a solar eclipse by standing in between Oberyn and the sun. At that moment, Oberyn's oily black sun spear flashed like lightning and finally made contact with Sir Gregor, punching through his mail to strike him in the arm. We interpreted this and many other arm-wounding scenes where lightning is featured as clues about the Hammer of the Waters and the Storm God's Thunderbolt really being ancient, mythical accounts of moon meteor impacts. We talked about how the Norse Storm God, Thor, has a hammer which hurls thunderbolts, cluing us into the link between divine hammers and thunderbolts from the Storm God. We also talked about how meteorites were sometimes called thunderstones in the ancient world. We examined scenes in which dragon attacks from the sky were described as falling like thunderbolts. All in all, I think I laid out a pretty strong case that the Hammer of the Waters and the Storm God's Thunderbolt were indeed accounts of moon meteor impacts. The most important aspect of the Grey King's story, however, is that he stole the fire of the gods and possessed it for man, much like Prometheus and Lucifer and so many others. We have identified this as a major, defining theme of the Azor High myth, and it certainly got our attention that this idea is prominently featured in the Grey King folklore. The Grey King was actually said to possess fire by two different methods, by taunting the storm god into setting a tree ablaze with a thunderbolt, and also by slaying the sea dragon Naga. He's got a taste for godly fire, this Grey King. Aaron Dampere gives us the quick summary of the sea dragon event in A Feast for Crows. Naga had been the first sea dragon, the mightiest ever to rise from the waves. She fed on krakens and leviathans and drowned whole islands in her wrath. Yet the great king had slain her, and the drowned god had changed her bones to stone so that men might never cease to wonder at the courage of the first of kings. And then a bit later, we hear about the great king possessing the sea dragon's fire. The hall had been warmed by Naga's living fire, which the Grey King had made his thrall. As for the Grey King stealing the fire of the gods from the Storm God's mighty thunderbolt, the world of ice and fire gives us the lowdown. The deeds attributed to the Grey King by the priests and singers of the Iron Islands are many and marvelous. It was the Grey King who brought fire to the earth by taunting the Storm God until he lashed down with a thunderbolt, setting a tree ablaze. According to our theory, both the Storm God's Thunderbolt and the Sea Dragon are mythicized descriptions of moon meteor impacts. 
Now Azor Ahai stole the fire of the gods by stealing the moon from the sky and by making Lightbringer out of the moon's corpse, which fell from the sky like a storm of fiery dragons. The Grey King, meanwhile, called down fire from heaven, just like Azor Ahai, and then somehow possessed that fire. How far do these similarities go? These myths have some of the same themes. Could they refer to the same events or people? As you might suspect, I believe the answer is yes, at least in part. Just as Azor Ahai possessed the fire of the gods in the form of a black weapon made from a moon meteorite, I do think the Ironborn also quite literally possessed black moon meteorite material. Consider this quote from The World of Ice and Fire, which I left you with at the end of Chapter 3, Waves of Night and Moonblood. And when battle was joined upon the shores, mighty kings and famous warriors fell before the reavers like wheat before a scythe, in such numbers that the men of the Greenlands told each other that the ironborn were demons risen from some watery hell, protected by fell sorceries and possessed of foul black weapons that drank the very souls of those they slew. You'll recall that Lightbringer supposedly drank Nissanissa's blood and soul when it slew her. I have been proposing that Lightbringer was a black steel sword made from a black moon meteorite, so it's very tempting to draw a connection between Lightbringer and these soul-drinking black weapons in the hands of the ancient Ironborn. Lightbringer was the fire of the gods, and I believe that it was a black weapon. The Grey King and the Ironborn possessed the fire of the gods, and they also had these suspicious black weapons. Hmm. And then we have the 800-pound stone kraken in the room, the sea stone chair, carved into the shape of a kraken from an oily black stone. As we examined in The Mountain vs. the Viper, there is abundant evidence tying the oily or greasy black stone to moon meteors. I have proposed that the oily black stone is either moon meteorite material or else earth stone burnt black by the toxic, magical fire of the moon meteors. The fact that the ironborn possessed the fire of the gods and an oily black stone tends to make me wonder if that wasn't the truth of those soul-drinking black weapons, that they were weapons made from oily black stone, the fire of the gods which was pulled down to earth. So, the Ironborn have two legends about fire falling from the sky, multiple ideas about possessing the fire of the gods, soul-drinking black weapons, a very long history with working iron, and a big honk and chunk of what is probably meteorite stone, or stone turned black and oily by meteor fire. I think this may be a case of mythology, which is not entirely figurative. And then, there's the issue of the Weirwoods, which pop up in every single Grey King myth, believe it or not. For example, the means by which the Grey King took possession of the Storm God's fire was the Burning Tree, set ablaze by the Divine Thunderbolt. As we mentioned at the end of the Mountain vs. the Viper episode, the Weirwood Tree is a symbol of a burning tree. Its five-pointed red leaves are described alternately as bloody hands and bits of flame, and together with the screaming face weeping blood, it's basically the image of a tree person whose hair and hands are on fire. The weirwood magic of the Greenseer Bond can indeed be seen as the fire of the gods, the knowledge and power of the gods, that is, and the Yggdrasil mythology behind the weirwood tree has a direct connection to the notion of obtaining the fire, magic, and knowledge of the gods, as we will explore in the very near future. To say it simply, the fire of the gods as a broad concept represents the knowledge and the power of the gods, and this is exactly what the weirwood bond bestows upon the Greenseer. When we see the burning tree pop up in the Grey King folklore as a symbol of the fire of the gods, I think we can deduce that what we are talking about here 
are weirwood trees and the green seer bond. The sea dragon myth is also related to weirwood trees, because the arching pillars of pale stone, known as Naga's ribs, are almost certainly made of petrified weirwood, which turns into pale stone after thousands of years. A third Grey King myth has him making the first longships of the Ironborn from the, quote, hard pale wood of Ig, and that's Y-G-G, Ig, a demon tree who fed on human flesh. The name Ig is a pretty blatant call-out to Yggdrasil, the world tree of Norse myth on which the weirwood ideas are heavily based. So again, we see an entanglement of weirwood ideas with the mythology of the Grey King and the first Ironborn. There's a good theory that we'll talk about that speculates that the pale stone pillars that are seen as the rib cage of the sea dragon may actually be the upside-down hull of a large boat made of weirwood. This is exactly what the world book is suggesting the Grey King did, build ships from weirwood. So, in our first foray into the stormy world of Ironborn theology, we'll answer the question of why the sea dragon, storm god's thunderbolt, and other elements of Grey King mythology seem to refer to both meteors and weirwoods. As strange as it sounds, there's a very logical and clear answer, and it reveals a dramatic truth about Azor Ahai, perhaps the most important thing I've told you about him since I first told you that he was a bad guy who broke the moon and caused the long night. But you'll have to wait till the end of the episode for that one. As always, you can find the essay form, that is, the text-based form of this podcast, at luciformeanslightbringer.com, and that's also where you can leave a comment with your thoughts on the episode, which, be our guest, we'd love to hear from you. Joining me today on the podcast to read the quotes from the text is the amazing and talented Lady Nightwind. We've got a new intro song for a new compendium, and it's again from the great and wonderful Animals as Leaders, their track titled Isolated Incidents from the album Weightless. Thanks to them, as always. Thanks to all of our supporters on Patreon and the Starry Host. We love you and appreciate you. An extra special thanks to our newest patron to claim one of the Twelve Houses of Heaven, Lord Leobold the Victorious, the Fire Lion of Lancasterly Rock, an earthly avatar of the Celestial House Leo. This episode is dedicated to you. Thanks to all of you listening right now, and thanks above all to George R.R. R. Martin for writing the books. With that said, let's get this Weirwood Compendium underway. The Sea Dragon This section is brought to you by Patreon supporter, the Duchess of Tillymage, priestess of the Church of Starry Wisdom and keeper of the two-headed Sphinx. The first thing I need to do is to convince you that the Sea Dragon is in fact an account of a moon meteor impact. We've already talked about the Thunderbolt a bit in the Mountain vs. the Viper episode, and we'll certainly come back to it as well as the idea of the burning tree. But we've been mentioning the Sea Dragon in passing for several essays now, and I haven't really given you my full body of reasoning and evidence for the Sea Dragon being a moon meteor, so let's start with that. It begins with very basic logic. If the mythical idea of dragons coming from the moon really refers to falling moon meteors, then a sea dragon is probably nothing more than a dragon meteor which fell into the sea. We've seen that the Chinese have been keeping track of comets for thousands of years, and have a history of depicting comets and falling meteors as fire-breathing dragons. But not just any old fire-breathing dragons. The Chinese always depict their dragons as water dragons and sea serpents. 
This is likely the result of the Chinese having dealt with tsunamis brought on by the landing of meteor and comet dragons in the Pacific Ocean. The sea dragon Naga was noted to drown whole islands in its wrath, and this is an excellent description of the enormous tsunamis which do indeed accompany the oceanic impact of a fair-sized meteor. The Hammer of the Waters, another likely moon meteor impact story, also involves drowning a lot of land, the formerly whole and now broken Arm of Dorne. I mentioned that Thor's lightning hammer suggests a connection between the storm god's thunderbolt and the Hammer of the Waters, and the drowning of land involved in both tales does the same. As we examine the sea dragon ideas here, watch out for hammers and hammering waves. By tracing out the moon blood symbolic motif in past episodes, we've seen that floods are a major fallout of the long night moon explosion disaster. George is doing a pretty clever wordplay thing by using the phrase moon blood as a reference to the real floods of the long night. The moon is the cause of the ocean tides and tends to trigger a woman's monthly cycle as well, which is why menstrual blood is often referred to as a woman's moon blood. Therefore, what better way to describe a moon goddess's death, which causes floods, than moon blood? It captures the sacrificial aspect of Lightbringer's forging, as well as the reproductive aspect, and we know that both are important parts of the Lightbringer myth. It's also a call-out to the tale of Mithras, and his slaying of the white lunar bull, whose blood flowed over the entire world and transformed it. The description of Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale's black and red rippled steel as waves of night and blood crashing upon some steely shore, was actually one of our first hints about the sea dragon aspect of Lightbringer. Lightbringer is a sword which brought darkness, the waves of night, and flood tides from pieces of drowned moon, the waves of blood, and that is reflected in the description of the swords formerly known as Ned's Ice. The likely truth here is fairly simple. A moon meteor must have impacted on or near the Iron Islands, drowning the land and probably collapsing some of the land too, such as the area around Castle Pike. The first Theon chapter of A Clash of Kings, which is our introduction to the Iron Islands, contains some of the most vivid examples of mythical astronomy in the entire series, and it tells the tale in fairly clear language, all while the red comet hangs in the sky above the castle in typically menacing fashion. The point of land on which the Greyjoys had raised their fortress had once thrust like a sword into the bowels of the ocean, but the waves had hammered at it day and night until the land broke and shattered thousands of years past. All that remained were three bare and barren islands and a dozen towering stacks of rock that rose from the water like the pillars of some sea god's temple while the angry waves foamed and crashed among them. Castle Pike is a part of a point of land which thrust into the bowels of the ocean like a sword and then broke. We took a long look at broken swords in the Tyrian Targaryen episode, and we saw that they seemed to be referring to the splitting of the Lightbringer Comet and to the last hero whose sword was broken. You remember all that, right? The Second Sons have a broken sword on their banner because the meteor impacts lit up the sky like a second sun. Ned's sword, symbol of Lightbringer, was split in half, and so on and so forth. Here in this quote, the broken sword was the one which thrust into the bowels of the ocean. That's our island-drowning sea dragon, thrusting into the ocean like a sword at the place where the waves hammered the land. The castle pike itself seems to be a part of the broken sword land, as is noted several times in the chapter, and in the very next paragraph, we see that the sea tower of castle pike sounds a lot like, well, 
Lightbringer. The sea tower rose from the outmost island at the point of the broken sword, the oldest part of the castle, round and tall, the sheer-sided pillar on which it stood half-eaten through by the endless battering of the waves. The base of the tower was white from centuries of salt spray, the upper stories green from the lichen that crawled over it like a thick blanket, the jagged crown black with soot from its nightly watchfire. A jagged black crown which lights on fire at night. You don't say. Remember that the golden crown worn by kings was originally meant as a depiction of the sun's rays. It was a way of signaling that the king has the divine authority of the sun god. A black crown inverts this symbolism and implies a dark sun, or perhaps one who has taken his divine authority through force. The ironborn themselves actually wear two kinds of crowns, the driftwood crown, or else a black iron crown such as Balin Greyjoy speaks of. There are a lot of black crowns in A Song of Ice and Fire, and I believe that they all refer to the idea of a darkened sun or an illegitimate sun king, which is exactly what Azor High was. Thus, for the black tower at the tip of the broken sword to have a flaming black crown, well, let's just say, that's our man. Salt and smoke are here too, the soot which darkens the top of the tower, and the salt which turns the base of it white. I'm tempted to point out that the colors here, white, green, and black, mirror the colors of Danny's dragons. I guess I did just point that out. Only two paragraphs later, the red comet itself, infamous symbol of Lightbringer, makes an appearance to clue us in to what kind of dragon sword falls into the sea. Theon had never seen a more stirring sight. In the sky behind the castle, the fine red tail of the comet was visible through the thin, scuttling clouds. All the way from River Run to Seaguard, the Malisters had argued about its meaning. It is my comet, Theon told himself, sliding a hand into his fur-lined cloak to touch the oilskin pouch snug in its pocket. Inside was the letter Rob Stark had given him, paper as good as a crown. So we have a castle with a very Lightbringer-like tower that sits on a point of land which thrusts into the bowels of the sea like a long sword or like a sea dragon, and right behind it, like a red flag calling our attention, we have the Red Comet, Lightbringer symbol par excellence. Just like the black crown of the sea tower, Theon's parchment crown is set on fire, as Balin casually tosses it into the fire upon receiving it later in the chapter. The parchment curled, blackened, and took flame, a perfect match to the curved sea tower with its black crown of flame. Flaming black crown, either way. Theon's soon-to-be-burnt crown is in an oilskin pouch, perhaps to symbolize the oily black stone of the Lightbringer Comet and the Moon Meteors. In other words, the symbolism here paints Theon as a man with a flaming black crown to whom the Lightbringer Comet belongs. There's actually a third Ironborn story about how they came to possess fire, and it leads right back to the conclusion that this fire we are talking about was Lightbringer. This is also from A Clash of Kings. Every morning brings a new day, much like the old. In River Run, they would tell you different. They say the Red Comet is a herald of a new age, a messenger from the gods. A sign it is, the priest agreed, but from our god, not theirs. A burning brand it is, such as our people carried of old. It is the flame the drowned god brought from the sea, and it proclaims a rising tide. It is time to hoist our sails and go forth into the world with fire and sword as he did. 
The red comet is like a burning brand, and it proclaims a rising tide, a reference to the island-drowning floods of the sea dragon meteor impact. It also proclaims the time to go out with fire and sword, or perhaps with a fiery sword. It's interesting that the drowned god brought this fiery brand from the ocean. How did fire get into the ocean, I wonder? Well, we think we know the answer. A fiery and wrathful sea dragon comet sword was thrust into the bowels of the ocean, shattering the land. This lines up well with what the Ironborns say about themselves and their origins. The Iron Islands are named for their people, who are like iron, and that the Ironborn themselves come from the sea. Iron people that emerge from the sea with burning brands who will go forth with fire and sword, in other words. As we'll begin to see, bringing fire out of the sea is an important aspect of the Ironborn mythos, starting here with this tale of the drowned god carrying the burning brand from the sea. As for the burning brand itself as a symbol, Aaron directly compares it to the Red Comet, but there's actually another scene where the burning brand is used to symbolize the fallen star fire that is Lightbringer. This is from a John chapter of A Clash of Kings, as John and Stone Snake prepare to climb up the pass in the Frostfangs. They could see the fire in the night, glimmering against the side of the mountain like a fallen star. It burned redder than the other stars, and it did not twinkle though sometimes it flared up bright and sometimes dwindled down to no more than a distant spark, dull and faint. The wolf will remain with us, Corrin said. White fur is too easily seen by moonlight. He turned to Stone Snake. When it's done, throw down a burning brand. We'll come when we see it fall. Translating the myth speak in this scene, we see that a stone snake will throw down a burning brand when he climbs high enough to reach the bright red fallen star fire suspended in the night. Got it. Also, add Stone Snake to the growing list of comet metaphors, one of my favorites. Taking a look at the major events in this chapter, we see that a stone snake, a comet, collides with a red star fire, the fire moon, blood is spilled, there's three people at the fire for three dragon meteors, Azor High Reborn symbol Jon Snow does a Lightbringer forging scene with Kissed by Fire Moon Maiden Ygritte, and then the burning brand falls from the sky. That burning brand symbolizes the dragon meteors which fell from the moon, one of which became the sea dragon meteor that was thrust into the bowels of the sea at the Iron Islands. Thus we see that the story of the Grey King possessing the fire of the sea dragon is the same thing as the drowned god carrying the burning brand out of the sea. That burning brand is the fire of the sea dragon. Even better, one of the wildlings at the fire actually uses the burning brand as a weapon against John, drawing a connection between the burning brand symbol and the idea of fiery weapons that come from a fallen red star. And who is this drowned god anyway? Remembering that the moon is a goddess, the woman wife of the sun, it is known, the pieces of the moon which drowned in the ocean as sea dragons would be pieces of a drowned moon goddess. In other words, what we are really talking about here with the sea dragon is a drowned goddess, not a drowned god. The drowned goddess is the one with red star fire that fell into the sea, the sea dragon, the leviathan. In other words, the drowned god is the sea dragon moon meteor, and therefore a drowned goddess. The drowned god's fire, which he brought from the sea, is the twisted fiery magic of the moon meteors, the fire of the gods known as Lightbringer. I want to say again and make clear that I think all of this mythology has a literal implication, and I would suggest that it points to the Ironborn 
harvesting the material of the sea dragon meteorite. According to my theory, the sea stone chair is a piece of moon meteorite, one which was supposedly found on the shores of Old Wick by the first people to arrive on the Iron Islands. It may be a remnant of a larger meteorite from which meteoric iron to make weapons was harvested. I'd also like to point out that burning brands, such as the drowned god carried from the sea, are burning wood. And of course, a burning tree represents the fire of the gods in the myth of the Grey King and the storm god's thunderbolt. The burning brand is therefore connected to the fire of the gods concept in three different ways. It's burning wood, it's directly compared to the red comet, and it's the form of fire which the drowned god carried from the sea, making it the fire of the sea god. You'll recall that the pillars of the broken sword of land on which Pike sits are described as the pillars of a sea god's temple. Putting it all together, we have a series of mythical metaphors, both in the main text of the story and in Ironborn folklore, which seem to be describing a meteor plunging into the ocean near the Iron Islands at the time of the long night and causing deadly floods. And lo and behold, all throughout these paragraphs that we quoted concerning Theon's arrival at Pike, we have a ton of references to island-drowning waves, as well as hammering to call to mind the hammer of the waters. We've seen it said of the broken sword of land that, the waves had hammered at it day and night until the land broke and shattered, thousands of years passed, and also that the angry waves foamed and crashed among the pieces of the peninsula, which are like the pillars of some sea god's temple. We saw that the sheer-sided pillar on which the sea tower stood was half-eaten through by the endless battering of the waves. There's more I could quote, but you get the idea. Could these angry waves that did so much damage in the ancient past be the ones generated by the sea dragon's fall from the heavens? The same event which was remembered as the hammer of the waters breaking the land and drowning islands? Aaron Dampere from A Feast for Crows. Outside, beneath the snoring of his drowned men and the keening of the wind, he could hear the pounding of the waves, the hammer of his god calling him to battle. Aha! The same waves which hammered the land of Pike, which is like a broken sword, are described here as God's hammer. I would say that the sea dragon, a fallen moon goddess, was itself the hammer which broke the land and brought the drowning waves. This is a delightful parallel to the hammer of the waters drowning and breaking the land of the Arm of Dorn. The sea dragon meteor hammer is also the storm god's thunderbolt, which lines up well with Thor being a storm god who hurls thunderbolts from his hammer. Again, we are left with the idea that the Hammer of the Waters, the island-drowning sea dragon, and the storm god Thunderbolt all refer to the same thing, moon meteor impacts. Let me say this. Although the Hammer of the Waters seems to refer to an impact on the Arm of Dorne, and the sea dragon and Thunderbolt myths seem to refer to an impact on or near the Iron Islands, both meteors would be from the same explosion, and therefore, George has chosen to weave all the moon meteor symbols together in the same scenes. Thus, the Ironborn myths have a ton of hammer references, and Hammer of the Water scenes have dragons and spears and lightning and so forth. A great example of this kind of parallel between different meteor myths are the waves of night and blood that appear to crash onto the steely shore of Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale. The Castle Pike sits on a point of land which is a broken sword, one which was washed over by the moonblood flood of the sea dragon, and in similar fashion, Ned's split or broken swords have waves of blood washing over them. 
The bloody sea dragon flood came during the long night, and Ned's swords have the waves of night to symbolize the long night. In turn, Aaron sees the pounding and crashing waves as the hammer of his god, creating the image of a divine hammer pounding the steel of the Broken Sword Peninsula at the Iron Islands. That broken sword of land thrust into the bowels of the ocean, and thrusting swords into the ocean is how you get hammering sea dragon waves, the waves of moon blood which came during the long night, the waves of blood and night, which we see on Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale, in other words. Flip back around to Ned's sword, and we recall that we saw it being dipped into the night black waters of the pond in the Winterfell Godswood, while still bloody from the execution in a Game of Thrones, creating very miniature waves of night and blood. The idea of God's hammer being the one to smash the Iron Islands is reinforced all through this chapter through references to Robert Baratheon's attack on Pike during the Greyjoy Rebellion. As I mentioned before, King Robert and his hammer are a rather clear manifestation of Thor and his mighty hammer Mjolnir, and his entire attack on the Iron Islands is replaying the Storm God's Thunderbolt Strike, the Sea Dragon Landing, and the Hammer of the Waters. It was nigh on sunset when they reached the walls of Pike, a crescent of dark stone that ran from cliff to cliff, with the gatehouse in the center and three square towers to either side. Theon could still make out the scars left by the stones of Robert Baratheon's catapults. A new south tower had risen from the ruins of the old, its stone a paler shade of gray, and as yet unmarred by patches of lichen. That was where Robert had made his breach, swarming in over the rubble and corpses with his warhammer in hand and Ned Stark at his side. Theon had watched from the safety of the sea tower, and sometimes he still saw torches in his dreams and heard the dull thunder of the collapse. Pike's walls of dark stone are called a crescent, which puts us in mind of the lunar crescent that was broken to create the sea dragon meteor, as well as all the related sickle, curving knife, crescent moon symbolism. Robert hurled stones at this crescent, then came through with his war hammer, Theon's reference to thunder gives us the thunderbolt idea to go along with Storm King Robert's hammer. Continuing the pattern of weaving hammer ideas in with flaming sword ideas, we find that there was a flaming sword on the scene at the Battle of Pike as well. Like I said, the gang is all invited. This is Gendry talking to Arya in a storm of swords. He liked feasts and tourneys. That's why King Robert was so fond of him. And this Thoros was brave. When the walls of Pike crashed down, he was the first man through the breach. He fought with one of his flaming swords, setting iron men on fire with every slash. I wish I had a flaming sword. I can think of a few people I'd like to set on fire. The Ironborn were set on fire by a flaming sword, the one which crashed through the breach in the Crescent of Dark Stone along with a thunderous hammer. That's our sea dragon meteor, giving the Ironborn fire, if you will, just as the sea dragon gave its fire to the Grey King and the ancient Ironborn. Setting the Ironborn on fire serves as a nice metaphor for giving them fire, in this case the fire of a flaming sword in service to the Storm King. A flaming sword in service to the Storm King is exactly what we think the Storm God's Thunderbolt was, and that too gave the Grey King fire. Moving away from that Theon chapter of Clash for a moment, we find more confirmation of the idea that the hammering waves can be connected to the sea dragon when Aaron prays to the drowned god in a feast for crows. My god, speak to me in the rumble of the waves and tell me what to do. 
The captains and the kings await your word. Who shall be king in Balaam's place? Sing to me in the language of Leviathan, that I may know his name. Tell me, O Lord, beneath the waves, who has the strength to fight the storm on Pike? The word Leviathan has a couple of different meanings. It can refer to any large sea creature, particularly whales, and sometimes large people are derisively called leviathans. Sam is called a gray leviathan by lazy Leo Tyrell, for example, while Yezin, the Yunkish slave master, is called a yellow leviathan. But the word leviathan originally referred to a well-known mythological sea creature with a very specific description. It's a monstrous, multi-headed sea dragon. That's right, we're talking about a multi-headed, fire-breathing dragon which lives in the ocean a real sea dragon. So when Aaron is praying for the drowned god to speak to him through the waves in the language of Leviathan, it's simply another clue that the drowned god is actually the island drowning sea dragon, and that the hammering waves come from the sea dragon. The language of the sea dragon is the flood, the one which hammers and drowns the land. While we are defining words that mean sea monster, we should briefly talk about the name that George gave the sea dragon, Naga. Although the word naga has sort of become a common word for snake in many fantasy universes, it does actually have a more specific origin. Naga is the Vedic Sanskrit word for cobra, and the same word is used to refer to a specific type of deity or being which incarnates as a great snake, usually a king cobra, which is native to India, although it can sometimes be other snakes. In the Mahabharata, nagas are beings with both human-like and snake-like attributes. The myth of the Naga evolved as it traveled from India and sees many other incarnations in nearby mythology, many of which show various forms of the snake man idea. In Hindu myth, they are more like spirits which can bring fertility or sometimes floods and storms, and most notably, they are thought to possess the elixir of immortality, the fire of the gods in other words. In Buddhist mythology, Naga became merged with myths of wise dragons and dragon men and is frequently depicted as a man with multiple snake or dragon heads above him, or just as a multi-headed dragon or snake. The emphasis here is on a transcendent being who has gained the knowledge of heaven and attained enlightenment, which they specifically associated with a dragon's fire. There are versions of Naga in Laos, Thailand, Java, and Indonesia, and many of those are associated with rivers or lakes or oceans. But my favorite is the Cambodian idea of Nagas. They were thought to be a reptilian race of beings under the King Kalia, who possessed a large empire or kingdom in the Pacific Ocean region until they were chased away to India by the Garuda, a phoenix-like incarnation of Lord Vishnu. The daughter of these lizard people married a Brahmin from India, and from their union sprang the Cambodian people. Thus, the Cambodian people have a saying which means, born from Naga. Pretty cool. So if we were to sum up the body of ideas which George may be implying by naming his sea dragon Naga, we would include beings who are both snake and man, or even dragon and man, multi-headed snakes or dragons, beings who possess magic and the knowledge and fire of the gods, and frequent associations between dragons and water. I think it's easy to see how these ideas are generally in sync with George's own dragon mythology, which encourages us to draw a link between the sea dragon ideas and the rest of his dragon lore. Azora High, the three-headed dragon, people that are blood of the dragon, and so on. Next, I'd like to turn our attention to the Leviathan, 
whose voice Aaron was seeking in the hammering of the waves, and also to the broader real-world phenomenon of dragon slayer myths where the slaying of the dragon results in a transformational global flood. The Language of Leviathan This section is brought to you by Patreon supporter and Starry Wisdom Priestess, the Venus of Astgik, Starry Lady of the Dragonstones. Leviathan is a Hebrew word meaning twisted, coiled, or that which gathers itself into folds, referring to the way that snakes coil up and fold in on themselves. The biblical sea dragon Leviathan was probably based on similar, older ideas in the same region specifically that of Ocean of Chaos dragons Tiamat and Lotan, or his Greek incarnations Laidon and the Hydra, all of whom were slaughtered to effect some kind of creative process on the world, usually accompanied by floods and storms. The legend of the island-drowning sea dragon Naga and its associations with the fallen moon maiden myth we've been tracing out in all the previous episodes could fit right in with this mythological family, which includes a long line of myths about dragon-slaying and world-transforming cataclysms, and thus I think it is appropriate to view it in that context. As for the biblical Leviathan, a true sea dragon, we read that in the beginning Yahweh, who was originally a storm god akin to the Canaanite Yam, created two Leviathans, but he killed the female and neutered the male. Since we have one moon which gave birth to dragons as it died, and one moon that still survives, it's tempting to draw a correlation there. Many of these types of myths have one big dragon-slaying event in the past and one big dragon-slaying event prophesied yet to come, exactly like the Carthene moon dragon myth, which speaks of a second moon that perished in the past and a surviving moon that will one day kiss the sun too and crack. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag or anything, but there is some potential foreshadowing that the red comet will return and crack open that remaining moon. That's a subject we'll dig into when we start our upcoming series called Moons of Ice and Fire. Even more interesting is the association with the skin of the Leviathan and light bringing. Yahweh makes clothes of light from the skin of the slain female Leviathan. That's a very close match to the idea of making the sword Lightbringer from the moon meteors, and it also reminds us of the Grey King making a long haul from the skeleton of the sea dragon. Supposedly, Yahweh will make an illuminating cover for the entire sky out of the skin of the male Leviathan at the end times, showing us the dragon-slaying-yet-to-come idea that I just referred to. George seems to be referencing these ideas, but inverting certain aspects, as he does with many of his inspirations. Darkness covers the sky when the sea dragon was slain, for example, instead of light, and the body of the slain sea dragon seems to drink the light instead of giving it off, as the biblical Leviathan's skin does. Returning to the idea of a leviathan or sea dragon being slaughtered to effect some huge transformation upon the world, let's take another look at Persian and Vedic mythology. We've seen that much of the Lightbringer mythology comes from Persian Zoroastrianism as well as Roman Mithraism, which itself was at least partially based on Persian ideas of Mithra, although there are many important differences and scholars dispute the exact level of connection. The loose translation of Azor Ahai as fire dragon, derives from Avestan, which is an older dialect of Persian, and Vedic Sanskrit phonetic roots. And here I'll take a moment to clarify what was actually a bit of an oversimplification from the first essay. The Middle Persian word for fire 
is A-D-U-R, adur, while the Avestan form is A-T-A-R, atar, and the modern version of the word is A-Z-A-R, azar. And that's where we get the similarity between the word azor and fire. Meanwhile, azi, which is A-Z-I, is the Avestan word for serpent or dragon. For example, in Zoroastrian myth, there's an evil three-headed dragon, or perhaps a dragon man, the tales are not clear, named Azi Dahaka, or sometimes Azdaha, who is chained up, but is prophesied to burst his bonds at the end of the world and ravage the earth, Lion of Night style. There's another dragon that was apparently in need of slaying called Azi Shruara, and I apologize, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation there, the poisonous horned dragon. The point is that Azi is a cognate to the Vedic Sanskrit word Ahi, A-H-I, which also means snake and sometimes dragon. The name of the big bad serpent dragon villain of the Rig Veda is usually called Viritra, but he is also called Ahi, A-H-I, and he's a snake who has to be slaughtered by the hero, Indra, an act which, of course, unleashes a global flood. The Rig Veda also speaks of the dragons of the deep, called Ahi Budnaya, who is said to dwell at the bottom of the heavenly rivers. So, to sum up our loose translation of the name Azor Ahai, Azor is similar to the old Persian and modern Iranian words for fire, and Ahai is very similar to the Vedic Sanskrit word Ahi, which means dragon or snake. The Avestan form of Ahi is Azi, which reminds us of the Az in Azor. And then we have the fire dragon Gosir, who comes to us from Zoroastrian and Manichaean astrology. Manichaeanism was a highly dualistic religion that sprang up in Persia around 200 AD, which is in part based on the book of Enoch, and it has much in common with early Christian Gnosticism and the later Gnostic beliefs of the Cathars of southern France. And the Cathars are another self-acknowledged point of inspiration for George R.R. R. Martin. The Manichaean cosmology tells of two dragon monsters, which are the enemies of the sun, moon, and stars, Gosir and Musperig, who are chained to the sun so as to prevent them from causing harm. They are placed opposite of one another in the sky and are made to turn the celestial wheel of the sky. Musparig may be the original demon responsible for lunar eclipses, which are of course known as blood moons, while Gosir seems to be associated with constellations and comets both. Here I will quote to you from the Encyclopedia Aronica's summary of a work called the Bundesin, which is a compilation of Zoroastrian cosmology derived from two older codices from the 8th and 14th century AD. At the end of time, Gosir will fall down on the earth, which it will terrify like a wolf does a sheep. Its fire and halo will then melt the metal of Sarwar in the hills and mountains, thus providing the river of molten metal necessary for the purification of men. At the end, after Ormazd himself has come down to earth to send Az and Ahraman back to the darkness whence they had come, Gosir the serpent burns in the molten metal, and the pollution of hell burns, and hell becomes pure. Gosir, as I said, is not an actual dragon, but a comet, or said another way, a star which fell from a constellation to the earth. You remember when I said many people all around the world have mythicized comets and meteors as fiery dragons, right? Well, here you go. This is a pretty fantastic one. The comet dragon falls from heaven and melts the metal of the earth for means of purification, 
which is right in line with all the myths of dragons being slain to transform the world through floods, as well as our own theory about the Long Night. A world-transforming comet dragon impact, connected with rivers of molten metal, has to remind us of the making of Lightbringer from the moon meteor dragons, and also of the idea that George sometimes symbolizes the storm of falling stars as a wave of blood in the sky, waves of bleeding stars or bloodstones, very similar to a river of molten metal. The idea of two dragons chained to the sun reminds us of the idea of the comet being split in two as it orbited the sun, creating two dragon comets, and the fact that one of these Manichaean celestial fire dragons also causes eclipses of one sort or another is obviously something that makes me go, ooh, 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 look at that. My point isn't to say, aha, George got all this from the Gosier story, I've solved the puzzle, but rather to point out that associating comet impacts with dragon slaying and world-changing cataclysms is a tradition which George is participating in with his own myth-making. He's speaking the common language of myth and building off of established symbolism. Although I do have to wonder if maybe he's read this Gosier story because, gosh, there's a lot of similarity. But anyway, you can see the clear echoes of the Gosier story in the Tauroctony, Mithras's slaying of the white lunar bull, which was a part of himself. You guys probably know that one by now. Mithras sacrifices the white bull and the bull's blood flows out onto the world and triggers a regeneration of life. One of the differences between Roman Mithraism and its Persian ancestors is that dragons are pretty much always evil in Persian myth, while the same is not true for Roman Mithraism. In the Tauroctony, the white bull plays the role of the dragon who was slain to unleash the flood, but the white bull is a friend to Mithras, just as dragons are seen as a source of knowledge and enlightenment by the initiates of the Mithraic mysteries, as the Roman adherents to this secretive religion were named. Part of the point of bringing all this up is to speak of one of the common universal myths found from the Middle East to India, that of the slaying of the dragon to transform the world. The oldest version of this story may be the Babylonian myth of Tiamat and Marduk, as I alluded to at the beginning of this section. Tiamat is a symbol of the chaos of primordial creation, originally a shining mother goddess embodying femininity. When her children kill her husband, however, she incarnates in the form of a monstrous sea dragon, only to be slain by Marduk, who used her divided body to form the heavens and the earth. She also gives birth to dragon children, which are monsters with poison instead of blood. The tale of Yahweh slaying the Leviathan is thought to have been a version of this Babylonian myth, and it's certainly very similar. I would suggest that all of these dragon slayer myths, many of which are derivative of one another to some extent, are playing into the same ideas and themes, death and resurrection, and world-changing natural and celestial disasters being personified as the wrath of dragons and sea dragons. We can see many parallels to Martin's own version of this myth, a sea dragon who makes or remakes the world, a dragon being slain to effect a creative act, a being who is a mother of dragons, etc. Marduk, slayer of Tiamat, is actually a storm god, as is Yahweh, so we can see that the idea of a storm god slaying a sea dragon has ample mythological precedent. One thinks of Robert Baratheon slaying Rhaegar in the River Trident, a scene we've examined a couple of times now, which gives us an incarnation of the Norse storm god slaying a black dragon who falls into the water. We had hammers and falling rubies that flashed like fire in that scene as well. This slaying of the dragon and its bloodline ushered in a new dynasty, with Robert reigning over a long summer of bounty and fertility. Now, an ironborn myth 
It's the storm god who hurls the thunderbolt moon meteor, while it's the gray king who slays the sea dragon meteor. But since both myths are referring to the slaying of the moon and the hammering of its meteor children, they amount to the same act. Slaying a sea dragon, or more accurately, slaying a moon which becomes a sea dragon, and hurling down the divine thunderbolt are the same thing. And that's also the same thing as swinging the hammer of the gods. The point is, all of these Westerosi fables are derivative of the dragon slayer myths from the real world, and in many myths, it is the storm king or the storm god who slays the dragon that unleashes the flood upon the world. For further reading, I recommend the Encyclopedia Aronica's entry on Azdaha, which gives a fantastic analysis of dragons in Persian mythology, and the link to that is on the text version of this essay at lucifermeanslightbringer.com. And now to get back to a Song of Ice and Fire material, I have a really awesome Leviathan quote that I've been saving, which gives us Robert the hammer-wielding Storm King creating dead Leviathans on the Iron Islands. This is from that first Theon chapter of A Clash of Kings that we've been pulling from, the one with the repeated references to Robert's storming of Pike. As Theon is sailing to Pike, he passes by the ruins of Lordsport, and we get this. When last he'd seen Lordsport, it had been a smoking wasteland, the skeletons of burnt longships and smashed galleys littering the stony shore like the bones of dead leviathans, the houses no more than broken walls and cold ashes. After ten years, few traces of the war remained. The small folk had built new hovels with the stones of the old and cut fresh sod for their roofs. A new inn had risen beside the landing, twice the size of the old one, with a lower story of cut stone and two upper stories of timber. The sept beyond had never been rebuilt, though. Only a seven-sided foundation remained where it had stood. Robert Baratheon's fury had soured the Ironman's taste for the new gods, it would seem. Theon was more interested in ships than gods. Remember how I said that the bones of Naga might actually be the flipped-over hull of a weirwood boat? Well, here we have a direct comparison between the wooden ships and the sea dragon. In this case, burnt and smashed ships are compared to the bones of dead leviathans. Theon is thinking of leviathans as in dead whale skeletons, but the hint here is about leviathan, the sea dragon, having some sort of connection to boats and wood. Shortly thereafter, Theon compares the ships to gods, completing the circle and bringing us back to the notion of the leviathan as a fallen god or goddess. We're going to get down to that sea dragon as a boat thing in a moment, so file that one away for now. Let's take a quick look around the scene here at Lordsport, starting with the name. This is the place where the gods come into port. That's our sea dragon goddess coming into port with her heavenly cargo. The name is similar in nature to the name King's Landing, which symbolically refers to the landing of King Azor High Reborn, the moon meteor. And the same is true of the name Lordsport, though it might have more literal implications since we think a meteor actually landed here at the Iron Islands. As for Storm King Robert Baratheon, he landed here with his hammer and his wrath, and he transformed it into what Theon remembers as a smoking wasteland littered with burnt sea dragon bones. As I mentioned, his attack is reenacting the hammer of the waters, the striking of the storm god's thunderbolt, setting fire to wooden boats instead of trees, and the slaying of the sea dragon, leaving burnt bones of leviathans laying around. Toss in the other references to this battle, and we have the hammer cracking open the crescent of dark stone, as well as Thoros's flaming sword coming through the breach, 
giving us references to the Lightbringer myth and the Hammer of the Waters myth again. In fact, you could say that the entire reason the Iron Islands Rebellion exists is so that Martin can depict Storm King Robert Baratheon repeatedly striking the Iron Islands with his hammer. Just as we see Robert hammering away on the Iron Islands to suggest a link to the Hammer of the Waters and the Thunderbolt of the Storm God, we have dragon attacks on the Iron Islands to suggest the Sea Dragon and Flaming Sword symbols. The first one involves House Volmark of the Iron Islands, whose sigil is a black leviathan on grey, which certainly invites further scrutiny. George R. R. Martin is a well-known lover of heraldry, and I believe he often makes use of heraldry to drop massive clues about the mysteries of the series. It turns out that the only significant member of the House of the Black Leviathan in history, besides the young Lord Volmark in the main story, is Corn Volmark. Corn Volmark was a distant relation to King Harwin Hardhand Hoare, who briefly claimed the Seastone Chair in 2 AC after King Aegon the Conqueror roasted Black Heron Hoare and all of his sons at Harrenhal. Corin Volmark then declared himself the rightful heir of the Black Line, referring to the supposedly black-blooded members of House Hoare. Of course, we've seen that black blood is a very important motif in our collection of Moondeath symbolism. Having the fire inside you turns your blood black. So this detail stands out as significant. Corin Volmark is a black-blooded Black Leviathan, and we know what that's all about a black bloodstone meteor turned sea dragon. The crux of Corrin's story is this, from the world of ice and fire. Other claimants soon arose on Great Wick, Pike and Orkmont, and for a full year and a half, their followers fought each other by land and sea. Aegon the Conqueror put into that fighting in 2 AC, when he and Balerion descended upon Great Wick, accompanied by a vast war fleet. The Ironmen collapsed before him, Corin Volmark died at the Conqueror's own hand, cut down by Aegon's Valerian steel blade, Blackfire. Aegon the Conqueror wields the sword Blackfire, while his dragon Balerion breathes Blackfire. They're matching symbols, in other words. Balerion descends upon Old Wick, the exact location of Naga's bones. This would be reenacting the sea dragon's landing on the Iron Islands, perhaps on Old Wick itself where it might have created the crescent-shaped bay now known as Naga's Cradle. Meanwhile, Aegon kills Corrin the Black Leviathan with Blackfire the Sword. The Grey King slew Naga and possessed her fire, and here that is represented by Aegon slaying the Black Leviathan and also possessing Blackfire in the form of a sword, although technically he didn't actually get Blackfire from Corrin. Nevertheless, the symbolism is there. Aegon slew the Sea Dragon by slaying the Black Leviathan, and he possessed black fire in the form of a sword. This would seem to be a match for the idea of the Grey King slaying the Sea Dragon and of the ancient Ironborn fashioning black soul-drinking weapons from the Sea Dragon Meteor. That would also equate the Grey King with our Black Dragon Azor High archetype, and that's an idea we had as soon as we heard that the Grey King was a stealer of heavenly fire. More on this to come. As a side note, the vast war fleet accompanying the Black Dragon Aegon would represent the meteor shower which accompanied the larger moon meteors. This is yet another connection between sea dragons and ships. These ships are owned by a Targaryen, and thus they are dragon ships. Ocean-going dragons. Sea dragons, after a fashion. And we are totally going to talk about boats in a minute. And when we do, you'll see that we are indeed meant to associate Targaryen ships with sea dragons. I'm not crazy, I promise. 
Aegon's sacking of the Iron Islands is referenced in A Feast for Crows at the King's Moot by Eric Drum, wielder of the Valyrian sword Red Rain. And remember that when he refers to the Black Line being ended, he's talking about Aegon's slaying of Corn Volmark. When the Black Line was consumed by Dragonfire, the Ironborn gave the primacy to Vicken Greyjoy. Aye, but as Lord, not King. I've included this quote because its phrasing about the bloodline of the Black Leviathan being consumed in Dragonfire suggests the idea of the moon's blood being incinerated and blackened by the comet's impact and by the resulting explosion, which would be the Dragonfire. A black-blooded Leviathan burning with black Dragonfire. It fits our picture of Lightbringer perfectly. I mean, that's it, exactly. And I think the message is that the Leviathan slash Sea Dragon Meteor was the same kind of black moon meteorite material from which Lightbringer was made. There's a nice comparison to Aegon and Beleriand's attack on the Iron Islands to be found in A Dance with Dragons, as Daenerys rides her black dragon, Drogon. This too reinforces the idea of the Iron Islands having been shaped by the fire of the sea dragon, the Black Leviathan. In a dozen heartbeats they were past the Dothraki, as he galloped far below. To the right and left, Danny glimpsed places where the grass was burned and ashen. Drogon has come this way before, she realized. Like a chain of gray islands, the marks of his hunting dotted the green grass sea. A chain of gray islands in a green sea, burnt by black dragonfire. Pretty nice, huh? These gray islands are all places where the dragon landed. There's another nice clue about black fire and black weapons on the Iron Islands at the time of the Long Night to be found in House Harlaw and their Valyrian steel sword Nightfall. House Harlaw's sigil is the Silver Scythe, indicating the harvest season and perhaps a bit of grim reaping. As we know, the Ironborn do not sow, they're all about reaping. The Silver Scythe evokes a lunar crescent and one that has turned into a deadly weapon. The Lord of the Iron Islands also styles himself Lord Reaper for what it's worth. The sword Nightfall itself has a moonstone pommel, as we've talked about before, which is a nice clue about stones from the moon causing the nightfall of all nightfalls. Nightfall was taken for House Harlaw by the Red Kraken Dalton Greyjoy. Nobody knows how the sword came into the possession of House Harlaw, but the Red Kraken himself is an Azor High Bloodstone Emperor symbol who will receive further analysis in the future. Take my word for it, He's the right guy to be associated with the Moonstone Valyrian sword called Nightfall. It's also worth mentioning that House Volmark of the Black Leviathan sigil lives on the island of Harlaw and takes their lead from House Harlaw like a kind of bannerman. The parade of Ironborn-based symbolism continues on Great Wick in the Hardstone Hills at the Hammerhorn Keep of House Goodbrother, and here we'll spice our discussion of black swords and sea dragons with a bit more Hammer of the Waters flavor. House Goodbrother draws their wealth from their mines, which produce iron and other minerals. Their sigil is a gold-banded black warhorn on a field of red, which bears an uncanny resemblance to Euron's dragonbinder horn, which split the air as sharp as a sword thrust when it was sounded, as well as the fake horn of Jormen that Melisandre burns at the wall in a dance with dragons. These horns are associated with dragons and earthquakes, respectively, both of which come together at the Iron Islands, where the sea dragon caused an earthquake. The description of the breaking of the arm of Dorne with the hammer of the waters, giants awoke in the earth and all Westeros shook and trembled, matches the description of the horn of Jormund's supposed effects, and here we find a hammer horn keep. If that weren't enough, 
cadet branches of House Goodbrother are found at places with such symbolically rich names as Crow Spike Keep, Down Delving, Corpse Lake, and Shatterstone. To run through those real quickly, Crow Spikes could be a reference to the Black Meteors, which are described as crows and ravens, and of course as sharp pieces of iron. Down Delving is literally a reference to the mines where they mine black iron, perhaps that of the Sea Dragon's corpse occasionally, and it may symbolically refer to the downward trajectory of the falling meteors. Corpse Lake could be a reference to the corpse of the moon goddess, the Sea Dragon, landing in the water. And Shatterstone, of course, could be an excellent reference to Pike's broken sword of land, which was shattered by the Sea Dragon's landing. To reinforce these ideas, here's a quote from the very first Ironborn chapter of A Feast for Crows, where Aaron Damphair is coming up to the Hammerhorn Keep after casually drowning some fanatics. It was long after dark by the time the priest espied the spiky iron battlements of the Hammerhorn clawing at the crescent moon. Gorald's keep was hulking and blocky, its great stones quarried from the cliff that loomed behind it. Below its walls, the entrances of caves and ancient mines yawned like toothless black mouths. The Hammerhorn's iron gates had been closed and barred for the night. Aaron beat on them with a rock until the clanging woke a guard. The hall was dank and drafty, full of shadows. One of Gorald's daughters offered the priest a horn of ale. Another poked at a sullen fire that was giving off more smoke than heat. If we were wondering whether the name Hammerhorn was supposed to be a clue about the hammer of the waters, the Hammerhorn's spiky iron is clawing at the moon connecting the idea of the moon being attacked and pulled down with hammers and horns and iron claws. The idea of the celestial horn plays on both the horns of the dragon comet, which clawed the moon, as well as the sound of the horn, which again, in the case of Dragonbinder, split the air like a sword thrust. I believe the horn and other references to loud sounds and screams refer to Nissanissa's cry of anguish and ecstasy, that's the sound which is actually said to break the moon in the Lightbringer story. In other words, the comet pierced the moon with its dragon horn, and the sound of the moon's scream, of the impact, was like the sound of a screaming hell horn. These horns brought down the hammer of the waters. And yes, I think the implication here is that the horn of Jorman and the dragonbinder horn may be the same thing, or the same type of thing, and one such horn may have even been involved in bringing down the moon, though that's definitely a subject for another day. Returning to the scene at the Hammerhorn Keep, Aaron beats on the iron gate of the keep with a stone, creating a sound that wakes the sleepers, if you know what I mean. And I know you do. George often gives us a metaphor in more than one form in the same scene, just to drive the point across. Aaron being offered a horn of ale after he wakes the sleeping folk of the Hammerhorn Keep is a great example of this technique. Inside the Hammerhorn itself, it's full of shadows and lit by a fire that gives off more smoke than heat, which is more or less how I've been describing the magic of the Berloris for a long time, more shadow than light. This fire which does not give off much light or heat is a recurring motif which always seems to apply to the shadowy, corrupted fire magic that we see throughout the series associated with Azor High, Lightbringer, and the Berloris. Finally, we saw the caves to the mines yawning like toothless black mouths, perhaps the place where they mine sea dragon bones, or perhaps just symbolic of the general concept. The Grey King was said to have made a throne of Naga's fangs, so perhaps these toothless black mouths 
refer to the defanged sea dragon, although that could certainly be a coincidence. Said another way, the ironborn bring black iron out from the inside of the black mouths of the mountain's mines, while the black bloodstone comes from the insides of the sea dragon. To make a more broad point, the fact that the ironborn are the oldest smiths in Westeros, and have a culture in large part based around iron and iron making, makes them a very good candidate for a Dawn Age people who might be able to fashion advanced swords for meteorites. Finally, there's a sneaky clue about the Hammer of the Waters being connected to Leviathan in the World of Ice and Fire. In the section on the breaking of the Arm of Dorne, which Maester Yandel rightly calls the single most important event in Dornish history and mayhaps the history of all Westeros, they speculate about what the real cause of the breaking might have been, given that the Maesters reject the more magical explanations. Archmaester Cassander suggests elsewise in his Song of the Sea how the lands were severed, arguing that it was not the singing of the green seer that separated Westeros from Essos, but rather what he calls the Song of the Sea, a slow rising of the waters that took place over centuries. But Aaron Dampere already told us that the drowned god sings through the waves in the language of Leviathan, and so we can see that the Song of the Sea, at least the one which drowned the Arm of Dorne, is really the song of the island-drowning sea dragon, whose language is the Flood. Additionally, the Lord of Harlaw of the Silver Scythe has a boat named Sea Song, linking the Hammer of the Waters with the Ironborn and Silver Moon Scythes, and also to the idea of sea dragons as boats, which is what we will discuss next. Some Smelly Fish This section is brought to you by Patreon supporter and priest of the Church of Starry Wisdom, Pleasant Jeff, captain of the Dreadship Headcanon, and guardian of the Purple Tide. Okay, let's talk about boats. Like most myth, I believe that the tale of the Sea Dragon and the other Grey King mythology does refer to historical events, at least one if not more. The first would be the moon meteor, which seems to have fallen near or on the Iron Islands, the sea dragon as a falling meteor. The second may be a story about a foreign people who possessed fire in some sense, coming to Westeros in boats, sea dragons as boats carrying fire-associated people. What I can say for sure is that the boat is an important part of the sea dragon symbolism, so we'll follow this line of symbolism and you can decide what you think it means. We are going to work our way to the idea of Naga's ribs as being a boat, but first I want to break down two scenes involving Targaryens and their boats, because Targaryen boats work fantastically as a symbol of the sea dragon as a boat. We'll begin with a lovely passage from A Storm of Swords where Daenerys is, and you're going to like this, sailing to Slaver's Bay on three ships named after Aegon's three dragons. That's right, not only do the boats belong to a dragon, they are actually named after dragons. This chapter begins by introducing the fact that Daenerys loves the sea, and builds on the sea dragon idea through the naming of the ships and finally the activity of the dragons themselves. Picking things up near the beginning of the chapter, Her Dothraki called the sea the poison water, distrusting any liquid that their horses could not drink. On the day the three ships had lifted anchor at Carth, you would have thought they were sailing to hell instead of Pentos. Her brave young blood riders had stared off at the dwindling coastline with huge white eyes, each of the three determined to show no fear before the other two, 
while her handmaids, Erie and Jeekwe, clutched at the rail desperately and retched over the side at every little swell. Three ships for the three dragons of Aegon and Daenerys, and more importantly, for the three primary dragon meteors coming from the moon. The three blood riders play into this symbolism as well. I've mentioned that the term blood rider builds on the Dothraki's interpretation of stars as horses by adding blood, creating the symbol of the blood riders as bleeding stars. And here they have huge white eyes to remind us of the moon. Daenerys Stormborn, she was called, for she had come howling into the world on distant Dragonstone as the greatest storm in the memory of Westeros howled outside, a storm so fierce that it ripped gargoyles from the castle walls and smashed her father's fleet to kindling. Daenerys, who is a symbol of both the moon, which was the mother of dragons, and the reborn dragon herself, is called Stormborn because Azor High was reborn during this storm that ravaged Planetos and caused the Long Night. You guys know all about that. We saw in the Tyrion Targaryen episode how the Blackstone gargoyles have a heritage involving stone dragons and therefore make tremendous fiery black meteor symbols. Turning back to the subject of boats, we see that the Targaryen boats are described as kindling, which evokes the idea of burning wood and burning ships, just as we saw with the burnt ships of Lordsport, which resembled the bones of Leviathans. The sea dragon brings fire to the earth, of course, so burning ships fit right in and also refer to the tree set ablaze by the storm god's thunderbolt. The narrow sea was often stormy, and Danny had crossed it half a hundred times as a girl, running from one free city to the next, half a step ahead of the usurper's hired knives. She loved the sea. She liked the sharp, salty smell of the air and the vastness of horizons bounded only by a vault of azure sky above. It made her feel small, but free as well. She liked the dolphins that sometimes swam along beside Balerion, slicing through the waves like silvery spears, and the flying fish they glimpsed now and again. She even liked the sailors, with all their songs and stories. Once on a voyage to Bravos, as she'd watched the crew wrestle down a great green sail in a rising gale, she had even thought how fine it would be to be a sailor. But when she told her brother, Viserys had twisted her hair until she cried. You are the blood of the dragon, he had screamed at her. A dragon, not some smelly fish. He was a fool about that, and so much else, Danny thought. I'll cut in here to have a laugh at Viserys' expense. We've already seen that Viserys isn't too good with symbolism and metaphor. He got burned by that whole, I am the dragon and I will be crowned thing after all. We, however, pay much closer attention, and we cannot fail to miss all the dragon-fish comparison going on here. The three ships are named for Aegon's three dragons, and the narrative weaves the ships and Danny watching her dragons flying through the air together from the very first paragraph. Danny herself is a kind of sea dragon, the blood of the dragon who loves the water and the sea. She's at one with the storm, unafraid, the stormborn. She's born on Dragonstone in the middle of the sea itself a clue about dragons, which are stones landing in the ocean, during the worst storm in memory. Of course, the only memories we have of the actual worst storm in history, one which raged around dragon stones in the ocean, are hidden under layers of myth. But that's why we're doing what we're doing here, after all, chasing down the worst storm in history. The dragon-fish comparison really takes flight in the next paragraph, with flying fish, and dolphins that swim like silvery spears alongside Balerion the dragon boat. There's more talk of Danny herself loving everything about the sea, and then a direct comparison between the dragons and fish, as Viserys says that a dragon is not a fish. The next words are, 
he was a fool about that, and so much else. That's clear enough. The only way it could be any more clear is if Old Nan showed up with a copy of Septon Barth's Dragons, Worms, and Wyverns, Their Unnatural History, to read us a bedtime story about sea dragons. Actually, it does get a bit more clear, as someone does directly compare the Red Comet to a fish in A Clash of Kings. Catelyn raised her eyes to where the faint red line of the comet traced a path across the deep blue sky like a long scratch across the face of God. The Great John told Rob that the old gods have unfurled a red flag of vengeance for Ned. Edmure thinks it's an omen of victory for Riverrun. He sees a fish with a long tail in the Tully colors, red against blue. So far, there seems to be a bit of truth to be found in every single thing the Red Comet has been directly compared to. Although, I have to say, the fish with a long tail description was one of the last ones to make any kind of sense to me. And now we know that it's a reference to the sea dragon as being one aspect of Lightbringer. Returning to the scene with Danny and her sea dragon boats. The captain appeared at her elbow. Would that this Valerian could soar as her namesake did, your grace, he said in bastard Valerian, heavily flavored with the accents of Pentos. Then we should not need to row, nor tow, nor pray for wind. The symbolic associations between the boats and the dragons continues all throughout these paragraphs, as Danny and the captain compare dragons and ships to each other as means of crossing the sea. And then we get a more literal manifestation of the sea dragon idea. Viserion's scales were the color of fresh cream, his horns, wing bones, and spinal crest a dark gold that flashed bright as metal in the sun. Rhaegal was made of the green of summer and the bronze of fall. They soared above the ships in wide circles, higher and higher, each trying to climb above the other. Dragons always preferred to attack from above, Danny had learned. Should either get between the other and the sun, he would fold his wings and dive screaming, and they would tumble from the sky, locked together in a tangled scaly ball, jaws snapping and tails lashing. The first time they had done it, she feared they meant to kill each other, but it was only sport. No sooner would they splash into the sea than they would break apart and rise again, shrieking and hissing, the salt water steaming off them as their wings clawed the air. Drogon was aloft as well, though not in sight. He would be miles ahead or miles behind, hunting. He was always hungry, her Drogon, hungry and growing fast. Another year or perhaps two and he may be large enough to ride. Then I shall have no need of ships to cross the great salt sea. But that time was not yet come. Rhaegal and Viserion were the size of small dogs, Drogon only a little larger, and any dog would have outweighed them. They were all wings and neck and tail, lighter than they looked. And so Daenerys Targaryen must rely on wood and wind and canvas to bear her home. Now there's nothing I love better than a good dragon eclipse. This one comes as the dragons try to get between each other and the sun, creating an eclipse before dive-bombing just as the moon was in an eclipse position before it sent its moon dragons dive-bombing. This really is a terrific confirmation of the eclipse idea, and a good match for all the times Drogon's wings passed before the sun and darkened the world, as we've seen in previous essays. At the moment of the dragon eclipse, we get our sea dragon meteor plummeting towards the ocean. The falling dragons splash into the water in a scaly ball and then break apart, like the broken sword of land and all the broken sword symbols, and then rise again. Harder and stronger, perhaps? According to Ironborn theology, the sea dragon rose from the sea 
as did the Grey King and the Drowned God himself, and the Ironborn conduct those ritual drowning and resurrection ceremonies. As I mentioned, carrying fire from the sea is an important aspect of this combined Ironborn myth, and that's what we may be talking about here, harvesting sea dragon material from the sea. In fact, the hissing and steaming as the dragons plunge into the water and fly back out reminds me a bit of a sword being tempered in cold water, or you might say a hot meteor stone landing in the ocean, which is the same idea on a larger scale. This idea is directly implied by the choice to describe the dragons as metal. Regal's dark golden spinal crest, horns, and wing bones flashed as bright as metal in the sun. I mean, it really is like dragon metal dropping out of the sky from an eclipse and becoming the sea dragon, landing in the ocean, and then rising from the waves. The folded wings of the soon-to-be sea dragon may meant to be a call-out to Leviathan, whose name, of course, means that which is gathered into folds. And for what it's worth, there's also a funny line in this chapter where Jorah talks about Westerosi tales of dragons big enough to snatch krakens from the sea, reminding us of the idea that the sea dragon Naga fed on krakens. At the least, it serves as a clue to make us think about sea dragons and ironborn mythology. I just love the double metaphor in this scene. Sea dragons as ships and sea dragons as metal dragons falling into the sea. Throw in the eclipse, and I'm a pretty happy camper. This scene is actually quite reminiscent of another dragon attack scene which we examined in the Mountain vs. the Viper episode, and that one also features both a dragon eclipse and a sea dragon symbol, although it's sadly lacking in boats. I'm speaking of the dragon-on-dragon -dragon battle between Daemon Targaryen riding Caraxes the Bloodworm and Aemond One-Eye Targaryen riding Vagar above the God's Eye during the Dance of the Dragons, a battle recounted to us in The Princess and the Queen. The first relevant line was, The attack came sudden as a thunderbolt. Caraxes dove down upon Vagar with a piercing shriek that was heard a dozen miles away, cloaked by the glare of the setting sun on Prince Aemond's blindside. In this scene, we have a dragon eclipse to symbolize the moon which wandered too close to the sun, a dragon attack from the eclipse to symbolize the moon dragons, a comparison of the dragon attack to a thunderbolt to remind us of the storm god's thunderbolt, and there's an off-the-charts ear-piercing shriek to remind us of the sound which broke the moon, Nissa Nissa's cry of anguish and ecstasy. Describing the shriek as piercing really does create the image of a sound which thrusts and punctures like a sword, and it reminds us of Euron's dragonbinder horn which split the air like a sword thrust. The sea dragon image comes as the dragons lock together, much like the scene with Viserion and Rhaegal, and then plunge into the water. Half a heartbeat later, the dragons struck the lake, sending up a gout of water so high that it was said to have been as tall as King's Pyre Tower. There's also a couple of clues about recovering the sea dragon meteorite material from the water here, because Caraxes, though mortally injured, managed to crawl back onto land beneath the walls of Harrenhal before expiring while years later, Vagar's body was, quote, found, and we know that at least his skull was recovered from the lake because we supposedly see it beneath King's Landing in the current story. Also recovered was the Valerian steel sword Dark Sister, which Damon had epically jammed into Aemon's blind eye before hitting the water. I'm not sure if they hired some merlings or squishers to go down there with a bone saw and recover this stuff or what, but somehow they did. So, recovered from the water, we have a dead red dragon, a black dragon sword, and at least the skull of another dead dragon, all of which are terrific Lightbringer symbols. 
It may be that these are metaphors referring to the ironborn recovering sea dragon material, as their mythology would suggest. Ah, but where were we? Boats, that's right, boats. Ships is really the correct word, but saying boats is more fun, so I hope you'll forgive me. In any case, the second major scene with the Targaryen ships involves the burning of the Seven on Dragonstone, a famous scene where the forging of Lightbringer is reenacted literally and symbolically. This is really a creative one by George, and I think you're going to get a kick out of this. All right, so burnt and broken ships can be like the bones of a leviathan, and ships owned by Targaryens are like sea dragons, dragons that swim or sail. Naming the ships after dragons is one better, especially when those dragons were themselves named after old gods of Valyria. The sea dragon is a drowned goddess, and the dragon ships are named for gods and dragons both. Well, what if we could turn those sea dragon boats back into gods and then, I don't know, set them on fire? That'd be some pretty cool symbolism. The morning air was dark with the smoke of burning gods. They were all afire now, maid and mother, warrior and smith, the crone with her pearl eyes and the father with his gilded beard, even the stranger, carved to look more animal than human. The old dry wood and countless layers of paint and varnish blazed with a fierce hungry light. Heat rose shimmering through the chill air. Behind, the gargoyles and stone dragons on the castle walls seemed blurred, as if Davos were seeing them through a veil of tears, or as if the beasts were trembling, stirring. The burning gods cast a pretty light, wreathed in their robes of shifting flame, red and orange and yellow. Septonbar had once told Davos how they'd been carved from the masts of the ships that had carried the first Targaryens from Valyria. Over the centuries, they had been painted and repainted, gilded, silvered, jeweled. Their beauty will make them more pleasing to R'hllor, Melisandre said when she told Stannis to pull them down and drag them out the castle gates. Pulling down the true gods to make a bonfire to forge Lightbringer in. Who would do such a thing? Azor High impersonator Stannis Baratheon, that's who. The wooden sea dragon ships which brought the Targaryens to Dragonstone became wooden gods, and then they became burning wooden gods. The fact that it was the mass of the ships, the part that still looks like a tree, that became the burning gods brings us right back to the burning tree motif, the one from the story of the storm god's thunderbolt setting a tree ablaze. That means that the burning wooden gods represent both the sea dragon and the burning tree, and those are both mediums by which the Grey King obtained the fire of the gods. And what does Stannis pull from this burning tree, which is also a piece of sea dragon? Why, Lightbringer, which is also the fire of the gods. This lines up with what I've been saying all along. The sea dragon and the thunderbolt, both of which gave the Grey King divine fire, are in fact two halves of the same story. They represent different aspects of the same event, and that event is the landing of a black moon meteor near the Iron Islands, and the making of evil black swords from its meteoric metal, and perhaps an invasion of proto-Valerian dragon people from Ashai. More on that later. There are two more quotes from the burning of the seven scene on Dragonstone I want to pull before I move on, as they connect to Ironborn mythology. Melisandre lifted her hands above her head. Behold! A sign was promised, and now a sign is seen. Behold, Lightbringer! Azor Ahai has come again! All hail the warrior of light! All hail the son of fire! A ragged wave of shouts gave answer, 
just as Stannis's glove began to smolder. Cursing, the king thrust the point of the sword into the damp earth and beat out the flames against his leg. Lord, cast your light upon us, Melisandre called out. They're standing on the beach, and Stannis Ahai shoves his flaming sword into the damp earth. It's not quite a sea dragon, but it's close, and honestly, if the Ironborn somehow harvested the meteorite material, then it probably landed close to shore or even right on the shore. You can't rule out those Deep Ones recovery units, but still. The sequence here is really great. Stannis is angry, and even curses as he jams Lightbringer into the earth. And then Melisandre says, Lord, cast your light upon us. That about sums it up. Angry, wrathful sea dragon meteors and a cursed Lightbringer. The light of the Lord, everyone. Soak it in. Next, we have an appearance of the Unholy Tide. Melisandre sang in the tongue of Ashai, her voice rising and falling like the tides of the sea. Stannis untied his singed leather cape and listened in silence. Thrust in the ground, Lightbringer still glowed ready hot, but the flames that clung to the sword were dwindling and dying. By the time the song was done, only charwood remained of the gods, and the king's patience had run its course. Melisandre is a prime fire moon symbol, and her song brings the tides. We know which tides these are, the tides of Moonblood. Meanwhile, Lightbringer is cooling in the wet ground where it landed. The sea dragon gods are now charwood, much like the burnt ships at Lordsport, which were like the bones of dead leviathans. As I said a moment ago, the sea dragon and the Thunderbolt stories both refer to falling moon meteors and the fire of the gods, but represent two different aspects of this event. We've got a pretty good idea about what the sea dragon is, a black moon meteor, and what the fire was, the black meteorite metal to make magic swords with, the kind Azor High used to make Lightbringer. As for the Storm God's Thunderbolt, the fire from the sky aspect is easy to understand, and we've caught on to the connection to the Hammer of the Waters via the incorporation of Thor's lightning hammer symbolism, but what exactly is the meaning of this burning tree? I've suggested that the symbol of the burning tree refers to weirwood trees, with their red hands of blood and flame. And this is where the bones of Naga and the idea of a weirwood boat come in. A fishy rack of ribs. This section is brought to you by a Patreon supporter and starry wisdom acolyte, Esdu de Liberi, called Island's Bane and the Silent Blade. Let's talk about those ribs, shall we? This is the full rundown on the Grey King and the Sea Dragon from Aaron's The Prophet chapter of A Feast for Crows. On the crown of the hill, four and forty monstrous stone ribs rose from the earth like the trunks of great pale trees. The sight made Aaron's heart beat faster. Naga had been the first sea dragon, the mightiest ever to rise from the waves. She fed on krakens and leviathans and drowned whole islands in her wrath. Yet the great king had slain her and the drowned god had changed her bones to stone so that men might never cease to wonder at the courage of the first of kings. Naga's ribs became the beams and pillars of his long hall, just as her jaws became his throne. For a thousand years and seven he reigned here, Aaron recalled. Here he took his mermaid wife and planned his wars against the storm god. From here he ruled both stone and salt, wearing robes of woven seaweed and a tall pale crown made from Naga's teeth. But that was in the dawn of days, when mighty men still dwelt on earth and sea. 
The hall had been warmed by Naga's living fire, which the Grey King had made his thrall. On its walls hung tapestries woven from silver seaweed most pleasing to the eyes. The Grey King's warriors had feasted on the bounty of the sea at a table in the shape of a great starfish, whilst seated upon thrones carved from mother of pearl. Gone, all the glory gone. Men were smaller now. Their lives had grown short. The storm god drowned Naga's fire after the Grey King's death. The chairs and tapestries had been stolen. The roof and walls had rotted away. Even the Grey King's great throne of fangs had been swallowed by the sea. Only Naga's bones endured to remind the Ironborn of all the wonder that had been. Before we discuss the ribs themselves, there's a couple of tasty sea dragon as a piece of drowned moon clues that I want to point out. The notion of the Grey King's throne being made from Naga's fangs introduces the idea of furniture made of sea dragon, and the table made in the shape of a starfish and mother of pearl thrones actually play into this idea as well. By now we know what kind of star becomes a fish, a moon which turns into a sea dragon. The mother of pearl thrones suggests the same thing, because pearls have always been associated with the moon due to their clear resemblance, and pearls are also found in the ocean, as our sea dragon meteorite was. The point is that all of the furniture in this scene is made of things which symbolize the sea dragon. Now to the important stuff. The bones of the sea dragon look like the trunks of great pale trees. Most people believe that's exactly what they are, petrified weirwood. They are used in place of beams and pillars, things which are normally made of wood. And we are given the exact same analogy by Victorian in his The Iron Captain chapter of A Feast for Crows. The wind was blowing from the north as the Iron Victory came round the point and entered the holy bay called Naga's Cradle. Victarion joined Newt the Barber at her prow. Ahead loomed the sacred shore of Old Wick and the grassy hill above it, where the ribs of Naga rose from the earth like the trunks of great white trees, as wide around as a droman's mast and twice as tall. It seems that George really wants us to think of those ribs in relation to weirwood trees. Best of all, there's a direct comparison between the sea dragon's ribs, white trees, and the mass of ships, which does a splendid job of firming up our interpretation of the sea dragon boat symbolism in the burning of the seven scene. Recall that it was the mass of the Targaryen ships that became the burning gods, and so it seems that we are indeed meant to associate the mass of ships with the trunks of trees, or burning trees when those mass are on fire. Mass are, after all, made from the trunks of trees, so we're not really talking about anything super esoteric here. As an aside, this is a really big ship that we are talking about if Victorian's estimation of size is anywhere close to accurate. This thing is like the ironborn version of Noah's Ark. There's yet another thinly veiled reinforcement of the idea that Naga's bones are made of weirwood in the world of ice and fire. The power wielded by these prophets of the drowned god over the ironborn should not be underestimated. Only they could summon king's moots, and woe to the man, be he lord or king, who dared defy them. The greatest of the priests was the towering prophet Galen Whitestaff, so called for the tall, carved staff he carried everywhere to smite the ungodly. In some tales, his staff was made of weirwood, and others from one of Naga's bones. Naga's bones and weirwood are interchangeable because they are the same thing. That's the clear implication here. As for weirwood turning to stone, we learn from Lord Titus Blackwood that the maesters say that weirwood trees turn to stone after a thousand years or so. 
they apparently never rot. Never rotting is a good thing for making boats, but turning to stone is not. Remember not to skimp on the 500-year warranty for your Weirwood boat. Make sure you go with at least the 1,000-year option, you know? Of course, if your boat does turn to stone, you can always make a building out of it. Petrifying pale trees give us pale stone naturally, which is how Naga's bones are described. Also noteworthy is the fact that weirwood trees are repeatedly referred to as bone white or as blood and bone. George has given us a sigil-based hint about this too. There's a house stone tree on the Iron Islands who, like House Volmark of the Black Leviathan, does fealty to House Harlaw of the Silver Scythe. The sigil of House Stone Tree is, predictably, a gray stone tree on a field of black. What is the sigil even supposed to mean, I wonder? And I'm talking about inside the context of the story, not just symbolic meaning. There must be some idea about stone trees floating around out there. Get it? Stone trees floating around? It's a sea dragon joke! Anyway, when Asha comes to Ten Towers, the seat of Roderick the Reader Harlaw, she sees the stone tree and the black leviathan sigils amongst those gathered, which is a nice pairing of sea dragon symbols ready to serve the grim reaper and his moonsickle. The black leviathan and stone tree are like parallel symbols, each representing one aspect of the sea dragon, the black sea dragon meteorite and the petrified stone trees remembered as Naga's bones. I think the evidence is overwhelming. Naga's ribs are made of petrified weirwood. I used to think about them as a dead weirwood circle, such as we find on a place called Sea Dragon Point, as a matter of fact. But History of Westeros forum user Vaxis convinced me otherwise with his excellent arguments, pointing to this quote from A Feast for Crows regarding the damp hair. It was there beneath the arch of Naga's ribs that his drowned men found him, standing tall and stern with his long black hair blowing in the wind. So they're not just pillars or tree trunks. They apparently form an arch. This is what makes them look like ribs. If they weren't arched together, they would just look like pillars. The Grey King was said to have built a long hall about her bones, using her ribs as beams and rafters in the world book, meaning that he built around the quote-unquote skeleton as is, as opposed to sawing the bones into boards and beams and then building out of them. He couldn't have used the ribs as rafters unless they curved together to make a roof. No, I think it's clear we are to imagine something that really looks like a rib cage, or more likely, like the overturned hull of a boat made from weirwood. As I said at the top, this is exactly what the Grey King was said to do. The Grey King also taught men to weave nets and sails and carved the first longship from the hard pale wood of Ig, a demon tree who fed on human flesh. As I mentioned, the weirwood trees and the Greenseer bond are heavily based on the Norse mythology ideas of Yggdrasil and Odin, making this talk of Ig a clear reference to weirwood, and thus making a boat of weirwood. The idea of the tree feeding on human flesh would seem to refer to the ancient Northman custom of human sacrifice in front of heart trees, again pointing to this Ig of Ironborn myth as being a weirwood. I think it all fits together pretty nicely. The Grey King was said to have made a boat from weirwood, and there it is, flipped upside down and used for a long haul. Very utilitarian of the Grey King. Waste not, want not, after all. The next question is where the boat was made. Locally, as the myth implies, or is this the boat, perhaps, of an immigrant people sailing to Westeros? It's certainly big enough to be the sort of ocean-going vessel needed for long-distance sea travel. Perhaps when they arrived, they used the frame of the boat hull for a long haul because it was simply all they had. 
Figuring out that Naga's ribs are actually the hull of a giant boat made of weirwood tells us a couple of things. First, it corroborates the legend of the Grey King making weirwood boats, making his overall legendary status just a bit more historical. It opens up the question of foreign immigrants to the Iron Islands, or rather, adds fuel to that fire which was already burning. We'll return to the discussion about the possible foreign origins of the ancestors of the Ironborn another time, but now I want to focus on the other implication of Naga's bones being made from weirwood, and that's the persistent and seemingly inexplicable involvement of weirwood in Ironborn mythology. I mentioned weirwood circles at a place called Sea Dragon Point a moment ago. You know there's bound to be some good sea dragon clues at a place called Sea Dragon Point, right? To begin with, it has weirwood circles, which makes perfect sense when you figure out that Naga's bones were once weirwood. Consider the name, Sea Dragon Point. The sea dragon has a point like a sword because the sea dragon meteor was the sword which plunged into the bowels of the ocean. That's a pretty nice one, right? There's more Sea Dragon Point goodness in Asha's The Wayward Bride chapter of A Dance with Dragons, one of my very favorite chapters, and it's there that we'll find our next clues about the mysterious presence of weirwoods in Ironborn myth. And there is still Sea Dragon Point. If I cannot have my father's kingdom, why not make one of my own? Sea Dragon Point had not always been as thinly peopled as it was now. Old ruins could still be found amongst its hills and bogs, the remains of ancient strongholds of the First Men. In the high places, there were weirwood circles left by the children of the forest. You are clinging to Sea Dragon Point the way a drowning man clings to a bit of wreckage. What does Sea Dragon have that anyone could ever want? What's there? I'll tell you. Tall pines for building ships. There's the line about weirwood circles at Sea Dragon Point. Asha, thinking about setting up a new kingdom there, makes me think of the first Ironborn, potentially the first immigrant ancestors of the Ironborn, that is, perhaps setting up a new kingdom at the place where the Sea Dragon landed, which would be the Iron Islands. Also found at Sea Dragon Point, tall trees to build ships with, a great Sea Dragon's as a boat clue. Christopher Botley says that Asha clings to Sea Dragon like a drowning man clings to a bit of wreckage, and that creates the image of the Sea Dragon as the wreckage of a boat in similar fashion to Theon calling the broken hulls of the boats at Lordsport Leviathans. One of the primary conclusions to draw from this repeated association between Weirwood and the Sea Dragon has to do with the Hammer of the Waters. The Greenseers were said to be the ones who called down the Hammer. Weirwoods and Greenseers go hand in hand, so associating the Weirwood with the Sea Dragon makes sense if the Sea Dragon and the Hammer of the Waters were both moon meteors, as I propose. To support this idea, let's return to the Wayward Bride chapter. By the way, Asha herself is the Wayward Bride, as she has fled her arranged marriage to Eric Ironmaker, and the phrase more broadly refers to a moon goddess who has wandered off course. She wondered who was in command of her foes. If it were me, I would take the strand and put our longships to the torch before attacking Deepwood. The wolves would not find that easy, though, not without longships of their own. Asha never beached more than half her ships. The other half stood safely off to sea, with orders to raise sail and make for Sea Dragon Point if the Northmen took the strand. Hagen, blow your horn and make the forest shake. Triss, don some mail. It's time you tried out that sweet sword of yours. When she saw how pale he was, she pinched his cheek. Splash some blood upon the moon with me, and I promise you a kiss for every kill. Well, we've got some ship-burning being suggested giving us the burning wood, burning sea dragon idea again, 
and then talk of the Moon Maiden's fleet descending on Sea Dragon Point to represent the fall of the Sea Dragon Moon Meteors. Then comes a rapid-fire sequence of symbolic references which we should be familiar with at this point. The Sea Dragon, then a horn blowing that makes the forest shake, think of the celestial tree shaking here as well as the earth, as the horn sounds. Then Moon Maiden Asha wants to see Tristopher's sweet sword. And finally, there's talk of splashing blood on the moon amidst some sex and swordplay language. A kiss for every kill. There's a great line a little earlier about killing moons and kissing moons at the same time. Asha took Tris Botley by the ears and kissed him full upon the lips. He was red and breathless by the time she let him go. What was that, he said. A kiss, it's called. Drown me for a fool, Triss. I should have remembered. She broke off suddenly. When Triss tried to speak, she shushed him, listening. That's a war horn. Hagen. This time, Asha the Moon Maiden says, Drown me. Right after kissing Christopher means Lightbringer. I mean, Christopher Botley. Then, a horn sounds. The wording here is exceedingly clever. The Moon Maiden breaks off suddenly when the horn sounds. The moon breaks off suddenly. I've actually read this passage many times, but I only just recently noticed that line. The allusion to the Carthian lunar origin of Dragon's Myth is clear. The moon wandered too close to the sun, kissed it, and was cracked. When Asha, the wayward moon bride, is kissed, she breaks off suddenly and commands people to drown her. The symbolic references to the idea of green seers calling down the hammer of the waters by breaking the moon gets really thick a bit later in this chapter. Tall soldier pines and gnarled old oaks closed in around them. Deep wood was aptly named. The trees were huge and dark, somehow threatening. Their limbs wove through one another and creaked with every breath of wind, and their higher branches scratched at the face of the moon. The sooner we are out of here, the better I will like it, Asha thought. The trees hate us all, deep in their wooden hearts. Just as we saw the spiky iron battlements of the Hammerhorn Keep clawing at the moon, here we have the finger-like tree branches scratching the face of the moon. Now that's what I call threatening. This chapter is full of personification of trees as human, including the Northmen who actually dress as trees. The trees seem to be whispering to each other in a secret language, Asha thinks to herself, and we know that whispering leaves is actually the communication of the weirwoods and the greenseers. Later, Asha thinks that the trees will kill us if they can. That's pretty great. They'll kill everyone by scratching the moon and bringing it down. Asha represents the moon, so it makes sense that the trees would have antipathy for both Asha and the moon. To be clear, I am interpreting the personified trees here as greenseers, people who have symbiotic relationships with trees. And the clues about the trees scratching the moon, I'm interpreting as referring to the idea of greenseers bringing down the moon. There's another line about this a bit further on. The trees hid the moon and stars from them, and the forest floor beneath their feet was black and treacherous. The treacherous forest hides the moon and stars because treacherous greenseers brought down the hammer of the waters, and the hammer was a moon meteor which brought on the long night. That's my theory anyway. There's a wonderful companion line back in A Feast for Crows from the damp hair as he calls for the king's moot an idea that he got while listening to the language of Leviathan in the surf. Seek the hill of Naga and the bones of the Grey King's Hall, for in that holy place, when the moon has drowned and come again, we shall make ourselves a worthy king, a godly king. 
He raised his bony hands on high again. Listen! Listen to the waves! Listen to the God! He is speaking to us, and he says, We shall have no king but from the king's moot. The moon drowns at the place where the sea dragon died, because the sea dragon was a piece of dead moon. That's when we'll make a new godly king, or perhaps god-king is the right expression. That would be Azor Ahai Reborn, who symbolizes the reborn sun and moon. Azor Ahai Reborn is the drowned moon come again. That would be the same thing as saying Azor Ahai Reborn can also be considered Nissa Nissa Reborn. Dampair may be prophesying the rebirth of Azor Ahai and another moon disaster right here. Impressive. In support of the connection between Azor Ahai Reborn and a drowned moon which rises again from the sea, I found a little notice line in A Storm of Swords which suggests that Azor Ahai Reborn may indeed have some kind of oceanic origin. His hand swept across the painted table. How many boys dwell in Westeros? How many girls? How many men? How many women? The darkness will devour them all, she says. The night that never ends. She talks of prophecies. A hero reborn in the sea. Living dragons hatched from dead stone. She speaks of signs and swears they point to me. Reborn in the sea, you don't say. Apparently Stannis has heard a slightly different version of the Azor High Reborn prophecy than we have, presumably from Melisandre. This seems like a total throwaway line when you first read it, as there's no immediately obvious way to connect Azor High with being reborn in the sea. But now that we know that the sea dragon is one aspect of Azor High being reborn, we can connect the idea of the Ironborn bringing the sea dragon's fire out of the ocean with Azor High being reborn in the sea. We can also take that as a further corroboration that the fire of the sea dragon which the Ironborn possessed is most likely intended to be related to Lightbringer and the Moon Meteors, and the idea that Azor High was reborn as a merling. Haha, <laughs> just checking to see if you were paying attention there. I'll also mention that Daenerys was reborn in the Dothraki Sea, and of course she was born on Dragonstone, which is a rock in the middle of the sea associated with dragons. So. After exploring the weirwood symbolism of the sea dragon, we have several parallels emerging between the Grey King, Azor Ahai, and Greenseers, and they raise some very interesting questions. First and foremost, who broke the moon? If the sea dragon was a moon meteor and the Grey King slew the sea dragon, then doesn't that make the Grey King a moonbreaker? He also called down the fire from heaven in the Storm God's Thunderbolt story, again putting him in the position of moonbreaker. But if the Hammer of the Waters was a moon meteor called down by some group of treacherous Greenseers, that means that the Greenseers broke the moon too. And then there's that fellow named Azor Ahai, who also has a thing or two to say about breaking the moon. What's the deal here? Who actually performed this dastardly deed? The point of stealing the moon seems to have been possession of the fire of the gods, and all three of these candidates do indeed possess that very fire. The Grey King stole the fire of the gods twice over, Azor High stole the fire of the gods in the form of Lightbringer and that black meteor, and the burning tree represents a weirwood whose power also represents the fire of the gods. How does this all fit together? The Weirwood Crown This section is brought to you by Patreon supporter and Starry Wisdom Acolyte, Messias the Dreamer, Spotter of Comets, Master of Hindsight, and Loyal Bannerman to whoever wins the Game of Thrones.
So how does all this fit together? Well, for starters, I think there is a good case to be made for the Grey King having been a Greenseer at one point. That's one way the stories can begin to line up. If the Grey King was a Greenseer, then both Greenseers and the Grey King can be said to have called down the meteor fire from heaven. As to the Grey King's Greenseer status, consider the three things that he supposedly had that were made from Naga's bones. The long haul made from her ribs, of course, and then we have the throne made from her jaws, and the pale crown made from her teeth. All of these make a great deal more sense when thought of as being made of weirwood, and since it seems that the long haul was originally made of weirwood, let's consider the throne and the crown in that light. The Grey King's pale crown, instead of being made of sea dragon teeth, becomes a weirwood crown. This would have perhaps been the model for the driftwood crowns later worn by the driftwood kings of the Ironborn. In fact, the world of ice and fire also speaks of the Grey King being remembered in some tales as having worn the first driftwood crown, which would indicate that some kind of pale wooden crown is likely to be the truth here, not a crown of teeth. There's a clue about this in the paragraph we already cited, where Aaron describes Naga's hill. On the crown of the hill, four and forty monstrous stone ribs rose from the earth like the trunks of great pale trees. It's a weirwood crown, get it? The weirwood ribs rise from the crown of the sea dragon hill, giving the hill a weirwood crown. I thought that was a pretty nice one. As it's been noted around the internet, the name Old Wick could be intended to suggest fire, as in a candle wick, so the idea of a burning weirwood crown may be here as well. Continuing with this alternate weirwood scenario, Grey King's throne, instead of being fashioned from the jaws of a sea monster, becomes a weirwood throne, and this too would make more sense than a throne made from a sea dragon skull, although admittedly, a sea dragon skull throne would be pretty freaking metal. A weirwood throne would also make the Grey King sound an awful lot like a green seer, sitting in a weirwood throne in a weirwood hall with weirwood branches wrapped around his head. I mean, shit. He sounds kind of a lot like Bloodraven, if you think about it. Before them, a pale lord in ebon finery sat dreaming in a tangled nest of roots, a woven weirwood throne that embraced his withered limbs as a mother does a child. His body was so skeletal and his clothes so rotted that at first Bran took him for another corpse, a dead man propped up so long that the roots had grown over him, under him, and through him. What skin the corpse lord showed was white, save for a bloody blotch that crept up his neck onto his cheek. His white hair was fine and thin as root hair and long enough to brush against the earthen floor. Roots coiled around his legs like wooden serpents. The corpse lord sits in a weirwood throne, wrapped in weirwood. Famously, one goes through his blind eye. Coiled around his legs are white wooden serpents a perfect companion to the sea dragon as weirwood idea. White weirwood sea dragon, white weirwood serpents. It's a nice match. Bloodraven himself is a weirwood dragon, for that matter, combining both dragon and weirwood symbolism, just as the sea dragon does. All Bloodraven needs is a nice dunk in the pond. Kidding aside, apologies Lord Bloodraven, please don't throw my family in the dungeon, we need to remember one other detail about the Grey King. He was something of a corpse lord, too, from the world of ice and fire. 
From there, he ruled the Iron Islands for a thousand years until his skin had turned as gray as his hair and beard. Aaron Damphair is more specific, saying that the Grey King reigned for 1,000 years and seven. Not sure what the deal is with the seven, but the point is, he had an unnaturally long lifespan, like Bloodraven and then some, and that he turned gray, which I would call corpse-like. In fact, we've seen a thousand-year-old face before, and it was described as looking like a corpse. It was white weirwood, and there was a face on it. A glow came from the wood, like milk and moonlight, so faint it scarcely seemed to touch anything beyond the door itself, not even Sam standing right before it. The face was old and pale, wrinkled and shrunken. It looks dead. Its mouth was closed, and its eyes. Its cheeks were sunken, its brow withered, its chin sagging. If a man could live for a thousand years and never die, but just grow older, his face might come to look like that. That passage was from a storm of swords at the black gate below the night fort. If a man could live a thousand years and never die, but just grow older. Well, that's what the Grey King was said to have done. The point here is the association between weirwood and long lifespans and growing corpse-like. Grey King seems to have been a fire-possessing dude sitting in a weirwood throne with a weirwood crown and a really long lifespan. Perhaps the Weirwood Bond was a part of that. The elixir, or Cup of Immortality, is one of the prime manifestations of the fire of the gods. We saw some of that with Sun Wukong in our Tyrian Targaryen episode, as well as with some of the legends of the Naga. The Grey King was specifically said to possess the Sea Dragon's fire, and although the Sea Dragon represents a couple of different things, one of those things is Weirwood, and the only way you possess the fire of the Weirwood is by hooking up to it via the Greenseer bond. And to accomplish this, you must sit in a weirwood throne, which is exactly what the Grey King was also said to have done. Therefore, I think we have every reason to believe that the Grey King was a Greenseer in one form or another. Interestingly, there's a completely opposite line of ironborn symbols to the weirwood crown and throne of the Grey King. However, they can also be thought of as being made of sea dragon material. Just as we've seen that the sea dragon seems to refer to both black meteors and white weirwood, we find the same dichotomy expressed in the crowns and thrones of the ironborn. As an opposite to the Grey King's white weirwood throne, supposedly made of sea dragon jaws, we have the sea stone chair, a throne carved from an oily black stone. If the oily black stones are meteorites, as I suggest, then this too is sea dragon furniture. As an opposite to the Grey King's weirwood crown, we have the black iron crown worn by the Iron Kings and more recently Balin Greyjoy. It isn't said to be made of oily black stone, but it is simply the familiar black iron crown symbol which signifies an inverted solar king, and black iron was taken from the meteorite in order to make swords with. Throughout all of its symbolism, the sea dragon continues to show us black meteors and white weirwood trees. The big question is, how do those two things come together? What is the link between weirwoods and moon meteors? The first part of the answer I've already suggested. The green seers were said to have called down the hammer of the waters, and the hammer of the waters was a moon meteor. The Grey King called down moon meteors in two different stories, so... This would all make a lot more sense if the Grey King was a Greenseer, 
one of the ones who was somehow responsible for bringing down the moon. As to how you steer a comet into a moon? Well, more on that in a future episode. As I've mentioned before, I've never bought into the idea that the children of the forest were the green seers who broke the arm of Dorn and called down the hammer. Rather, I've always thought it more likely that human green seers were the ones who abused their access to magical power and caused this great disaster. I'm thinking that eventually, all deeds that were ever committed by green seers of any kind probably came to be attributed to the children of the forest, because the memory of human green seers has almost completely faded. I believe that human green seer kings were a thing in the Dawn Age, and we'll be doing an examination of the evidence in support of that very soon. I've jokingly called these potential green seers who broke the moon naughty green seers, because I believe they were doing something quite naughty, for lack of a desire to use a more serious word. These would have been the treacherous, rebel green seers who were violating the natural order. Stealing from the gods, breaking the cycles of nature, that's the idea. The children of the forest are content to pass quietly into the night, having elapsed their given time on the earth, but anyone who tries to gain the cup of immortality is defying the life and death cycle. The Grey King seems like such a figure, potentially, a green seer who called down the black moon meteors in order to possess the fire of the gods in every way possible. It's probably also pretty obvious to you that Azora High fits this description as well, someone who brought down the moon goddess to possess her fire. It could be that Azora High and the Grey King are completely separate dudes on completely separate continents, whose mythology both sprang up around becoming a powerful king at the time when the black moon meteors fell. But as I've said before, I think the Azora High story has to end in Westeros, or else it's simply hard to see how it's relevant to the main story, and we've spent way too much time on it in the books for it to be irrelevant. I've found many clues indicating that Azora High did indeed come to Westeros, by dragon and by boat, and therefore it is entirely possible, and I'd even say probable, that the Grey King mythology does in part refer to the deeds of Azora High, perhaps transposed on top of a more local hero or heroes who established the ironborn fishing and seagoing culture, making the first nets and boats, being the first great king who founded a dynasty there, etc. The sea dragon as boats idea also suggests a storm of invading sea dragon boats, fiery people from over the sea, immigrating to or invading Westeros, which could be Azor High's fleet of pirates from Ashai, as I like to call them, We'll get back to this line of speculation another time. Suffice it to say that there is credible reason to think that some sort of a shy to Westeros contact did occur around or before the time of the Long Night, and thus there may be a plausible mechanism to explain how the matching mythologies of Azor High and the Grey King may well be referring to the same events and people, at least in some cases. Now, if the Grey King and Azor High are in some sense the same person, or at least if their stories refer to the same deeds and events, and if the Grey King was one of these naughty green seers, does it follow that Azor High was a naughty green seer? Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what I've been waiting to tell you for like six months now. Azor High was a green seer, a naughty one who transformed himself with fire magic through the stealing of the moon. It's the same logic here as with the Grey King. If the Green Seers had something to do with calling down the hammer, and if the hammer was really a moon meteor, 
and if Azor Ahai broke the moon, as his legend says he did, then it's possible that the answer to these seemingly conflicting tales is that Azor Ahai was a green seer who broke the moon. I think that's the case, and there's quite a bit of really excellent symbolism to support this idea. It begins with the burning tree symbol. The central aspect of the Lightbringer forging metaphor is transformation. Nissa Nissa and the moon that she symbolizes were transformed when they were stabbed by Lightbringer, and Azor Ahai and the sun were transformed by the dust clouds thrown up by the impact of the moon meteors. We've talked about the moon transformation quite extensively, and here I'd like to focus on Azor Ahai's transformation, which mirrors that of the sun. The moon meteors clouded the sky and darkened the sun, transforming it into the night sun, and in parallel fashion, I think the black meteors were used by the Bloodstone Emperor Azor Ahai to work dark magic that had a transformative effect on himself. That's how he became the Bloodstone Emperor, after all. This transformative act was a result of his taking possession of the fire of the gods. This exact idea is also found in the Grey King myth, I believe. If we understand that humanized and personified trees, particularly weirwoods, can symbolize green seers bonded to trees, then we can see a new wrinkle in the storm god's thunderbolt myth. The tree set ablaze by the thunderbolt represents the gray king himself, transforming through the fire of the moon meteors, just as Azor Ahai did. Similarly, we might also interpret the lighting of the tree on fire as the activation of the weirwood bond. Before the tree was ablaze, after all, it wouldn't look very much like a weirwood. Without the weirwood bond, a human cannot access the godlike power of the weirwood net. The powers of astral projection, limited time travel, unlimited peeping tom ability, and long life which the weirwood net connection offers is the fire of the gods, the knowledge and magic of the old gods. If the thunderbolt set the tree on fire, it might mean that the meteor strike triggered some sort of change to the weirwoods, perhaps activating them or corrupting them or allowing humans access to the weirwood net. And now it's time to get to the really good part of this episode, something I've been working to get to for a long time now. Thus, it is my pleasure to present to you... Green Seers of Fire This section is brought to you by Patreon supporter and Starry Wisdom acolyte, Black-Eyed Lily, the Dark Phoenix. Alright friends, we've got one section left, and it's a really important section. I almost broke it off into its own little podcast, but it's really the cherry on top of everything we've established so far in this episode. Having just presented you with the theory that the Grey King and Azor High stories are both referring to a green seer who pulled down the moon and transformed himself through the fire magic of the moon meteors, I feel the need to provide some supporting evidence, beyond what we have laid out already. Obviously, we are near the end of the episode here, so we're only just going to scratch the surface, which is why I'm calling this episode the start of a new compendium based around Weirwood and Green Seers. Subsequent episodes will build on these ideas. Right now, we are going to tie a bow on this episode by examining the burning tree motif and how it relates to the idea of a fiery green seer. Hold on to your butts, because this is going to be some new and dramatic information. All right. There's about 25 minutes or so left, 
So if you're feeling any symbolism fatigue, or if you're distracted where you are right now, it may be a good idea to come back to this last part at a better time and enjoy it when you're ready. With that said, here we go. Azor High is a fiery sorcerer. He's a magician and a warrior of fire, and he seems to have transformed himself through the use of fire magic, and, for lack of a better word, meteor magic, which I believe to be a kind of fire magic. Shadow fire, let's call it. The thing is, there is a persistent connection between burning trees, especially burning weirwoods, and fiery sorcerers. Many times, we find burning wood present at Lightbringer forging scenes, and from these symbolic bonfires, we see descriptions of fiery sorcerers waking and emerging. We've actually been seeing them for five books now, and I think you'll be surprised to see all these quotes that have them hidden right in plain sight. This will be kind of like a Where's Waldo-style hunt for fiery sorcerers that runs through many of the very best Lightbringer forging reenactment scenes in the whole series. We are going to take a look at six such scenes where the fiery sorcerers appear. Arya and the Night's Watch recruits at the abandoned holdfast near Harrenhal. The scene at the Red Temple where Benero pantomimes the destruction of the moon. The burning of the seven on Dragonstone. The alchemical wedding. The dragon-on-dragon -dragon battle between Moondancer and Sunfire from the Targaryen civil war known as the Dance of the Dragons. And a scene with Jon and Corrin in the Frostfangs right before Jon is forced to kill Corrin. The premise is this. The burning tree symbol represents a green seer transforming himself by taking possession of the fire of the gods. The thunderbolt strike of the storm god represents a meteor strike, and that is what set the tree ablaze with godly fire. What we will see in these scenes are depictions of fiery sorcerers waking and emerging from burning wood when the forging of Lightbringer or the landing of one of the Lightbringer meteors is symbolized. I am asserting that these fiery sorcerers are representative of a green seer transforming himself through fire, and that this is the truth behind the myths of the Grey King and Azor High. The first scene that we'll take a look at is the scene from A Clash of Kings where Arya, Yorin, and the Night's Watch recruits are trapped in the small abandoned holdfast near Harrenhal. They are besieged by Sir Amory Lorch, whose sigil contains a black manticore and three golden coins. And of course, golden coins are dragons in Westeros. As we're about to see, Sir Amory's attack is very much a reenactment of the attack of the dragon meteors. For a moment, she thought the town was full of lantern bugs. Then she realized they were men with torches galloping between the houses. She saw a roof go up, flames licking at the belly of the night with hot orange tongues as the thatch caught. Another followed, and then another, and soon there were fires blazing everywhere. Gendry climbed up beside her, wearing his helm. How many? Arya tried to count, but they were riding too fast, torches spinning through the air as they flung them. A hundred, she said. Two hundred. I don't know. Over the roar of the flames, she could hear shouts. They'll come for us soon. There, Gendry said, pointing. A column of riders moved between the burning buildings towards the holdfast. Firelight glittered off metal helms and spattered their mail and plate with orange and yellow highlights. One carried a banner on a tall lance. She thought it was red, but it was hard to tell in the night with the fires roaring all around. Everything seemed red or black or orange. The fire leapt from one house to another. There are two ideas in this quote which work as a setup to the payoff line that I'm going to give you in just a minute. The flames, personified as a living thing, 
and the living soldiers depicted as beings of fire. These are two sides of the same coin which work to show us beings made of fire. The fire is described as being like a person, and the people are described as being like flame. Starting with the anthropomorphized fire, we see flames look at the belly of the night with orange tongues, and we see the fire leap from one house to another, like some kind of wild animal, and twice the fire is also roaring like an animal, as if the fire had become some kind of beast. More importantly, we have the fiery soldiers. Sir Amory's men with torches are first equated with lantern bugs, flying things that are associated with fire. The fire reflects off their helms and armor, making them look as if their armor were made of fire. These fiery lantern bug knights send their torches spinning through the air like spinning meteors. There's a line a bit further on that says, A torch sailed spinning above their heads, trailing fingers of fire as it thumped down in the dirt of the yard, after which Yorn immediately shouts, Blades! Which I take for a clue to associate the spinning torches with blades, as in the flaming swords of the moon meteor shower. Notice that the torch trails fingers of fire, almost as if the lantern bug knights had thrown their fiery hands at Arya and the company. This is a representation of the fiery hand of R'hllor symbol which we know and love. Like the fiery tongues, fingers of fire also works to create the image of a being made of fire. We also get spears being hurled from out of the firebright shadows, reminding us of the meteors as sun spear symbolism and the idea of fire shadows. Melisandre's shadow babies born of Stannis' life fires, or Drogon, the wing shadow who spits black fire, both of which are prime black meteor symbols. After the soldiers get inside the holdfast, there's a line where they are described as steel shadows with flames shining off their mail and blades, meaning that our steel shadows now have fiery swords as well as fiery armor. Recall that the ghost of Highheart sees the shadow baby assassin in a vision as a shadow with a burning heart. Finally, there are two references to storms here. Right before the spinning torches that make Yorin say blades come flying over the wall, Sir Amory says, storm the gates. So that's a storm of meteor torches or fiery knights with fiery blades or however you want to say it. Right before they storm the castle, there's a long discussion about whether or not Yorin's group of Night's Watch pledges might not be serving the rebel Lord Beric, the lightning lord with a flaming sword and this serves to remind us of the connection between lightning and flaming swords. There's a terrific line where the sarcastic Yorin says, Are you blind, man? You see a bloody lightning bolt? That's a tasty one, because it links the thunderbolt idea with blood, which is convenient if you have a theory about the storm god's thunderbolt being a bleeding star or a bloodstone moon meteor, which I do. And then we get the payoff line. Arya saw a tree consumed, the flames creeping across its branches until it stood against the night in robes of living orange. There, in the center of it all, we find our friend, the burning tree, set ablaze by one of those twirling meteor torches in a terrific echo of the storm god's thunderbolt meteor setting the Grey King's tree ablaze. The burning tree here is rendered in grandiose fashion as it stands against the night in robes of living orange almost like some kind of fire priest. Actually, just like a fire priest. We are going to see that robes of flame are the hallmark of these fire sorcerers, beginning here with the burning tree. This entire scene with Arya and the burning tree specifically evokes the symbols of the Temple of R'hllor. So let's take a look at our actual fire priests next. 
This is the scene in A Dance with Dragons, when the high priest of the Red Temple, Benero, pantomimes the moon destruction with his fist, a scene we've dissected several times. I won't quote it all. Suffice to say, it's a scene with heavy lightbringer forging and moon destruction symbolism going on. There are many symbols in common with the Arya scene we just read, including fiery spears, the fiery hand, fiery knights, and those fiery robes. The acolytes were clad in robes of pale yellow and bright orange, priests and priestesses in red. Benero's high voice carried well. Tall and thin, he had a drawn face and skin white as milk. Flames had been tattooed across his cheeks and chin and shaven head to make a bright red mask that crackled about his eyes and coiled down around his lipless mouth. Is that a slave tattoo? asked Tyrion. The knight nodded. The Red Temple buys them as children and makes them priests or temple prostitutes or warriors. Look there. He pointed at the steps where a line of men in ornate armor and orange cloaks stood before the temple's doors, clasping spears with points like writhing flames. The fiery hand of the Lord of Light's sacred soldiers, defenders of the temple. Fire knights. And how many fingers does this hand have, pray? One thousand. And then comes the moon destruction pantomime, where Benera points at the moon, makes a fist, and then opens it in fire while declaring doom and darkness with Valerian glyphs written in fire in the air. Very dramatic. But this time we are focused instead on the fiery people and their fashionable attire. The burning tree in the last scene wore robes of living orange flame, and here we see robes of pale yellow and bright orange and red. It seems clear that the fire priests of Relor are trying to look as though they were robed in fire. Benero and the other high priests of fire, such as Makoro, take it one step further with their masks of writhing flame. They are tattooed to look as though they are literally made of living fire. I've speculated that this might be done in remembrance of some lost art of fire transformation, one which Melisandre may have rediscovered. The idea of people made of fire is also represented in the fire knights in this scene, who are counted the fingers of Relor's fiery hand, making them meteor symbols. The fire knights make a nice parallel to the knights with flames reflecting on their armor and swords in the last scene. Melisandre, our first example of a fire priestess, has robes which are often described in similar terms. Davos recalls her in A Storm of Swords with the line, Her red gowns moving like flames as she walked, a swirl of silk and satin. That compares very well with our tree wearing fiery robes of living orange. Melisandre, of course, burned the wooden statues of the seven who used to be sea dragon boats on Dragonstone. We'll revisit that scene to observe the fire sorcerers woken there in a moment, but first, there are some storm clues to clean up from this Benero scene. For a while, Tyrion could still hear Benero's voice growing fainter at their back and the roars his words provoked, sudden as thunder. Thunder, you don't say. That was the guy just hollering about the moon breaking into fiery fingers, right? In the very next line, after the thunder reference, we get a hammer reference. They came upon a stable. The knight dismounted, then hammered on the door until a haggard slave with a horse head on his cheek came running. The hammering brings a horse head, reminding us of the Dothraki custom of perceiving stars as horses, perhaps. And what the horse head person brings is yet another meteor symbol. The manacles were black iron, thick and heavy, each weighing a good two pounds if the dwarf was any judge. The chains added even more weight. I must be more fearsome than I knew, Tyrion confessed as the last links were hammered closed. 
Each blow sent a shock up his arm almost to the shoulder. Or were you afraid that I would dash away on these stunted little legs of mine? Another hammering, and this time it sends a shock, think lightning and electricity, up Tyrion's arm. If you can imagine an arm shocked by a hammer, you'll have it. It's that bloody lightning bolt Yorin was talking about, hammering the arm of Dorne. You'll recall Tyrion's arm-wounding scene from the Battle of the Green Fork, which we examined previously, where he was hit by the morning star of a white star wolf, a Karstark, a scene which also symbolized the hammer of the waters breaking the arm of Dorne. The chain of black iron that sends the hammer shocks up Tyrion's arm is also a clue about the arm of Dorne, which, thanks to the hammering of black iron thunderbolt meteorites, is now a chain of islands, one of which is named Bloodstone. I don't have the time to break down this whole chapter, but right after this, Mormont and Tyrion cross the long bridge of Volantis, a bridge of fused black stone made with the aid of dragonfire and sorcery. The black iron chain of the bloody manacles, as Tyrion calls them, is a perfect miniature symbolic companion to the black dragon stone bridge. Jorah and Tyrion even crossed this bridge from east to west, just as the first men would have crossed the Arm of Dorne from east to west in the Dawn Age before it became a chain of islands burnt by dragonfire. Our next scene with fiery sorcerers and burning trees is the burning of the seven on Dragonstone. Again, we don't need to quote very much of it, just the relevant lines. Remember that these burning gods represent both sea dragons, by way of their being Targaryen ships, as well as burning trees, because they are wooden masts, which are symbols of tree trunks, and also because what are thought of as the bones of the sea dragon are actually dead trees. In any case, these burning gods apparently bought their outfits at the Red Temple outlet store in Ashai. The morning air was dark with the smoke of burning gods. They were all afire now, maid and mother, warrior and smith, the crone with her pearl eyes and the father with his gilded beard, even the stranger, carved to look more animal than human. The old dry wood and countless layers of paint and varnish blazed with a fierce hungry light. The burning gods cast a pretty light, wreathed in their robes of shifting flame, red and orange and yellow. It's those same fiery robes of red and orange and yellow. They are blazing and shining, but their smoke darkens the morning sky. Those are the burning sea dragon gods, and they are dressed like our fiery sorcerers. They were set on fire by Lightbringer, in a manner of speaking, or at least we can say that they burned while pierced with Lightbringer. Lightbringer is the fire of the gods come down to man, and it comes when the gods are set ablaze. This might support the idea that the thunderbolt burning a tree with godly fire idea translates to the weirwood net being made accessible or altered in some way by the impacts of the moon meteors. There's an additional tie to weirwood here as the wood of the gods is called old, like the old gods. Melisandre proceeds to burn the seven on Storm's End shortly after this, and that time she also burns a giant weirwood from the Storm's End godswood what was in all likelihood an 8,000-year-old tree, at least, from the days of Durn Godsgrief, the first Storm King. All in all, this scene is tremendous and continues to yield up valuable clues. The fiery sorcerers emerge from the fire of the burning wooden sea dragon gods, a fire which also produces Lightbringer. Let's now take the search for fiery sorcerers to the alchemical wedding, 
If the fiery sorcerers are an important part of the Lightbringer forging chain of events, then they will surely put in an appearance at the alchemical wedding. And indeed they do. The flames writhed before her like the women who had danced at her wedding, whirling and singing and spinning their yellow and orange and crimson veils, fearsome to behold, yet lovely, so lovely, alive with heat. Danny opened her arms to them, her skin flushed and glowing. This is a wedding too, she thought. The flames were so beautiful, the loveliest things she had ever seen, each one a sorcerer robed in yellow and orange and scarlet, swirling long smoky cloaks. Once again, fiery sorcerers dressed in fiery robes of red, orange, and yellow, and their awakening from the bonfire of Lightbringer's Cradle, just as they did at the burning of the Seven on Dragonstone. The language is quite explicit here. They are fiery sorcerers, and they come to life along with the moon dragons at Lightbringer's Forging. You can see that George is really sticking to the same language, fiery robes and cloaks, red, orange, and yellow, and perhaps a little bit of smoke. We also see the inclusion of fiery dancers waking from the flames, and actually I think these are the same people, because there's a whole line of symbolism about dancing in the horned moon that we'll get into eventually, and I think it relates to this. Consider the dragon known as Moondancer, whom we hear about in The Princess and the Queen. Moondancer is a green dragon with pearl, horns, and claws. She's actually set on fire by a dragon named Sunfire in a reenactment of light... Oh wait, what's that? You want to hear the quote? Well, that's terrific, because there is more fire masquerading as clothing going on there, and because this is just a sweet paragraph of hot dragon-on-dragon -dragon action. In fact, let's cue up a little music to set the mood. They met amidst the darkness that comes before the dawn, shadows in the sky lighting the night with their fires. Moondancer eluded Sunfire's flames, eluded his jaws, darted beneath his grasping claws, then came around and raked the larger dragon from above, opening a long smoking wound down his back and tearing at his injured wing. Watchers below said that Sunfire lurched drunkenly in the air, fighting to stay aloft, whilst Moondancer turned and came back at him, spitting fire. Sunfire answered with a furnace blast of golden flame so bright it lit the yard below like a second sun, a blast that took Moondancer full in the eyes. Like as not, the young dragon was blinded in that instant, yet still she flew on, slamming into Sunfire in a tangle of wings and claws. As they fell, Moondancer struck at Sunfire's neck repeatedly, tearing out mouthfuls of flesh whilst the elder dragon sank his claws into her underbelly. Robed in fire and smoke, blind and bleeding, Moondancer's wings beat desperately as she tried to break away, but all her efforts did was slow their fall. Pretty epic, right? This is really fantastical mythical astronomy here. Sun and moon colliding and destroying each other. Exactly the picture of the eclipse, followed by the explosion which the Carthene myth describes as the moon wandering too close to the sun and cracking from the heat. The thing that falls out of the sky represents the Lightbringer meteor, and it's made up of the sun and the moon fused together, just as I've been saying, and it's a bloody and flaming dragon ball that is like a second sun reinforcing the idea of Lightbringer as a second sun. Moondancer is blinded, representing the torn-out moon-eyes symbolic motif that we've talked quite a bit about. But more importantly, Moondancer is gloriously robed in fire. The line is, robed in fire and smoke. 
just like the fiery dancers that woke from Danny's Lightbringer foraging ceremony, and just like all the fiery sorcerers that we've seen so far waking from Lightbringer wood-burning incidents. The fact that these signature fiery robes are worn by a moon-dancing green dragon is rich with symbolic import, and all of it corroborates our theory about these fiery sorcerers. They were green seers and dragon people, green dragons, if you will, awoken in the fires which forged Lightbringer. I'd also add that some part of their magic may involve dancing and singing, just as the children of the forest's true name is those who sing the songs of Earth. When Danny's dragons hatch, it says that the night came alive with the music of dragons. Those are actually the last words of a Game of Thrones, so you know they're important. As an aside, let me say that I love that George took the time to write such epic metaphor and symbolism, even in his supplementary quote-unquote material, such as The Princess and the Queen and The World of Ice and Fire. So don't let anyone poo-poo those works. Now that we've introduced fiery moon dancers to the family of fire sorcerers, there's actually a pair of loose details to clean up from the alchemical wedding scene, which relate to ironborn mythology. And there came a second crack, loud and sharp as thunder, and the smoke stirred and whirled around her, and the pyre shifted, the logs exploding as the fire touched their secret hearts. This entire solar pyre is made of carefully arranged pieces of wood. They're laid out north to south from ice to fire, if you recall, and the reference to the secret hearts certainly seem like a reference to the heart trees, which appear to be on fire and which harbor basically every secret there is. Secret wooden hearts, know what I mean? These wooden hearts are set on fire when the dragon's lunar egg cracks open with a thunderous sound, just as the thunderbolt slash sea dragon moon meteor set the tree ablaze. This is the second egg, which means Rhaegal, the green dragon, reminding us of Moondancer the green dragon and of the idea of green seers who were dragon people. When I see a thunderous green dragon touching secret wooden hearts with fire, I am again seeing a possible suggestion that the Weirwood Net was activated or altered, aka set on fire, by the meteor strike. To conclude the alchemical wedding scene, I'll note that Drogo too wears the fiery garments. And now the flames reached her Drogo, and now they were all around him. His clothing took fire, and for an instant the call was clad in wisps of floating orange silk and tendrils of curling smoke, gray and greasy. The reason I point this out is because Drogo is the dying solar king in this scene, and he wears the robes of the fire sorcerer. He represents the death of the sun and Azor High, while his perceived resurrection as the Red Comet parallels the rebirth of Azor High as a dark solar king. That's why the inclusion of greasy smoke and oil to light the wood a bit earlier. It's a call out to the greasy and oily black stone for which Azor High reborn is known. The point is, the fiery sorcerer woken from the Lightbringer pyre is none other than Azor High reborn. This is the burning tree that we've been tracking down. It's Azor High, the green seer who transformed himself through fire magic by cracking open the moon and waking the stone dragons. Drogo is consumed in the fire here, but in a moment he appears to rise from the flames, mounted on a smoky stallion, just as the tree was consumed in the fire of the storm god's thunderbolt, but gave birth to a gray king who was now armed with the fire of the gods. Basically any time we find burning weirwoods, we have Azor High making an appearance. Melisandre the fire sorceress has all the wildlings burn a piece of weirwood as they cross the wall and enter the seven kingdoms in a dance with dragons, 
And look who's standing there, looking on. None other than Azor High Impressionist, Stannis Baratheon, and Jon Snow. That was actually the same fire in which they burned the horn that bears an uncanny resemblance to Dragonbinder, but was called the Horn of Joraman. Hell, even almost weirwood burnings are linked to Azor High figures. For example, when Jon Snow is offered Winterfell and the Stark name by Stannis, it comes with the condition of having to burn the heart tree in the Winterfell Godswood, which Jon simply cannot do. Way to go, Jon. While he's considering this choice, however, he does dream of swimming in the Black Pond before the Weirwood Tree with Fiery Moon Maiden Ygritte, showing us the drowning of a fiery moon in yet another iteration. Remember also that this is the same pond Ned sticks his bloody dragon sword into, as we examined in Waves of Night and Moonblood. Sticking with Jon Snow, we find more fiery sorcerers woken by Azor High burning some wood, and this is from A Clash of Kings. I'll do as you say, Jon said reluctantly, but you will tell them, won't you? The old bear, at least. You'll tell him that I never broke my oath. Corrin Halfhand gazed at him across the fire, his eyes lost in pools of shadow. When I see him next, I swear it. He gestured at the fire. More wood. I want it bright and hot. John went to cut more branches, snapping each one in two before tossing it into the flames. The tree had been dead a long time, but it seemed to live again in the fire, as fiery dancers woke within each stick of wood to whirl and spin in their glowing gowns of yellow, red, and orange. Enough, Corin said abruptly. Now we ride. Ride? It was dark beyond the fire, and the night was cold. Oh man, that's a great one. I told you you would be surprised by how flagrant these quote pools are, right? The tree had been dead a long time, but seemed to live again as it gave birth to fiery dancers wearing the familiar uniform of red, orange, and yellow clothing. I mean, that one was pretty on the nose. This comes as Azor Ahai reborn figure Jon Snow is about to commit a blood betrayal of sorts, as he is forced by circumstance to turn his sword on his brother. That fight occurs by a dead tree, the one the eagle perches on when they emerge from the cave. There's an additional tie between the dead tree that was resurrected in the fire and the Night's Watch, because at the end of this chapter, Corrin's body is burned on a wooden pyre made of broken branches, mirroring the earlier fire of broken branches from which the fiery dancers emerged. This is important because the Night's King and the Last Hero were members of the Night's Watch, and I suspect that one or both of those people were either Azor High or his offspring. Linking Corrin's burning corpse to the fire in which the dead tree lived again is suggestive of the Night's Watch brothers as fire sorcerers. As you may recall, we've seen other evidence suggesting that the original Night's Watch brothers may have been fire undead people, perhaps even green seers and skin changers, who were resurrected in a similar manner to Azor High or the Last Hero or the Grey King, or however many people are behind the truth of these myths. In conclusion, I present to you Azorahai the Greenseer in the form of Beric Dondarrion. He wields a flaming sword. Check. Reference to lightning. Check. Resurrected through fire magic. Check. Bleeds black blood. Check. Sits on a weirwood throne. Actually, yes. Check. Not an active Greenseer throne as Bloodraven sits in, but as we have seen before when we have quoted this scene, Beric sits in a tangle of weirwood roots in a cave full of weirwood roots 
just like Bloodraven. He's called the Lord of Corpses by the Ghost of High Heart, while Bloodraven is called the Corpse Lord in the scene where Bran first meets him. We quoted that one earlier. Barak has a missing eye, just like Bloodraven. Both wear black cloaks, though Bloodraven's does not have the stars and lightning. Now, many people have noticed the parallels between Barak and Bloodraven, but I'm not sure that anyone has known what to make of them. I would submit that the likeness is there to tell us something important about Azor High, that he was a resurrected and transformed fiery sorcerer who sat in a weirwood throne and wielded a flaming sword like Barak. He was a green seer, as Bloodraven is, and also someone with the blood of the dragon in his veins, as Bloodraven has. Azor High was a Night's Watch brother in some fashion, like Bloodraven and Jon Snow. In fact, Jon Snow is where a lot of these ideas lead. He matches the sketch of Azor High we've just laid out very well. First of all, Jon has the blood of the dragon in his veins, through his genetic father, Rhaegar. Hashtag, Ned will always be his real dad. Jon is a skin changer instead of a green seer, but I think the two are basically the same thing, perhaps with different orders of magnitude, since all Bran is really doing is skin-changing a tree. John is killed and soon to be resurrected. He dreams of wielding a flaming sword. He has a wound in one eye, the eagle attack from Clash. And he has associations with Weirwood through his Stark lineage and through his wolf, who has the coloring of a Weirwood and is compared to one by John. The biggest thing I am curious about is what magic John will be resurrected with. Fire magic, ice magic, or Weirwood magic? What I am sure of is that his status as a skin changer will enable a full resurrection, as opposed to Beric, who is more like a remnant of his former self. I think it's very likely that Azor Ahai's theoretical status as a green seer enabled him to be resurrected in whatever terrible form that he happened to take. We find a very similar story when we decode the Ironborn mythology. The Grey King sat on a weirwood throne, transformed himself through taking possession of the fire of the gods, in the forms of the burning tree, weirwood magic, and the black sea dragon meteorites, such as the sea stone chair. It's taken me a long time to sort through all the layers of this ironborn folklore, but I believe that that is what is at the heart of it. Fiery green seers. Naughty ones who broke the moon in order to steal the fire of the gods for their own, and in doing so, transformed themselves and the entire world. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and if you did, please consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast to help keep this kind of stuff coming hot and heavy. You can find the link for our Patreon page at lucifermeanslightbringer.com or by searching for Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire on patreon.com. This was a really densely packed episode with a lot of interwoven ideas, and it has certainly raised a whole host of new questions. Questions about these naughty green seers, who they were, where they came from, what exactly they became, and what they did afterward. Questions about the timeline and human access to the Weirwood net, and what changes the meteors might have wrought on the Weirwoods. Questions about ancient migration patterns from east to west, and questions about who came to Westeros and the Iron Islands and when, and how these people might have integrated their cultures and left behind a tapestry of mythology woven together from different peoples with different places of origin. Questions about how it is that a magician of any variety takes a hand in steering a comet into a moon. 
Stay tuned to the mythical astronomy of ice and fire, and we'll explore these questions together, and many more besides. So thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. This is your starry host, LML, signing off. <laughs>